Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I like Welcome back to Legit Bat. Uh, w- this is a weird one, uh, or it could be weird. This is a therapeutic one. Yeah, it's therapy for uh, all those traumatized people out there. Uh, this is going to be kind of a, a story of Ben's uh, experience going to an academy. It was basically a bad boy academy that our parents sent him to uh, because he was just uncontrollable. He looked like a chemo patient because he shaved his head and uh, had dark eye makeup and shit. So it was it was a scary time. It was the early 2000s. So they sent him away to this place in... Uh, maybe I shouldn't even mention where it's at. Is it doesn't it even open? exist anymore. <laughs> it's it, it exists. It's just not in the place that it was. I'll, I'll, I'll get into all oh, that, yeah. too. Okay. So uh, this is this is going to be a great one for me because uh, I don't have to do hardly anything. And also, <laughs> we're joined by Ben's longtime friend, Bailey. And he's been on the show before, actually, about the first season, I think. And uh, he, he's just going to be here to you know ask questions for emotional support for Ben if... You know, box of tissues nearby and all that stuff. You fucker. All right. So I'm just going to toss it over to you, dude. I don't know all right, man. where you want to start or give a background on all this or what. I'll, I'll give it a little bit of background, but I also don't want to really like go into too much detail of any one particular aspect and kind of just rabbit trail too much. I'll try to keep it pretty linear. Is that possible? Um, Is that possible? <laughs> I'm. That's the whole point of consciously saying I'm going to try because if I don't, we'll just get lost and it'll be a five-hour show. So, yeah. um, all right. So for the, for those of you who are not familiar with it, back in the '70s, there was a guy named Lester Roloff, and Lester Roloff was based out of Corpus Christi, Texas, and he made um, troubled teen centers. They had boys, they had girls, they had uh, co-ed, and um, 
basically it was for the like the last resort for parents who didn't know what they could do with their children. They most of them were in and out of jail. Some of them were court ordered there. A lot of them were uh, drugs, felons, and uh, we'll get into more of some of the guys that were up there with me. Uh, but long story short, uh, it got closed down. Um, his his uh, establishments got closed down for child abuse. So all of his stuff gets ripped and uh, they still had these independent ones that were owned and it was very split back in the seventies. It was all word of mouth. You didn't have video footage of uh, things that were inside the walls. All, you couldn't trust what the kids were saying because they may have been coerced. And so a lot of this were kids running away, running straight to the cops and having to show marks and things like that of, of stuff that had happened. So the other thing I should mention is that Luster Roloff was a staunch Southern Baptist Christian. And so all of it was, you know, rot of proof, rot of correction, don't spare it. And uh, th they took that to an extreme and they really didn't feel that it was that big of a deal because these kids were on a, and this part, I, I, I get the idea behind, but it, their uh, delivery of it was horrible. But basically they looked at it as these kids are like on their way into the gutter of the grave before they were 20. And uh, a lot of times that happened, um, whether or not you can call it therapeutic or not, it's, uh, based on the kid. Uh, so all of his establishments get taken down and uh, they still had these homes that were operating the same way. There was a lot of people that came out of those homes that decided, well, it helped me so much. I'm going to start my own. We'll do things a little bit differently, et cetera, et cetera. So in the uh, early 90s, um, there was a home and I don't remember the name of it, but, uh, there were two gentlemen in there. One was a staff member and one was a student. And by the time the student graduated, the staff member approached him and said, Hey, I'd like to start our own. What do you say about being the lead pastor at this, uh, church? Because it has to be attached to a church. That's how it's a nonprofit, um, in that way. But they also had a actual school which made it uh, a tuition based so they were kind of double dipping in that aspect but he basically asked him hey would you like to start this and it'll be based off of one of the luster roll-off homes and so the guy says yeah that's fine he goes to seminary he gets his uh you know whatever it is that they need to get to stand in front of a pulpit and um they start this boys home in uh, 1999 they had uh, the original five, as everybody calls them, were the original five students. And this was also based in Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, they moved once to another place, I believe, in Texas, um, I believe in around 2000. And then they moved from there to Billings, Montana. Uh, big, big move. And then they settled in, I believe, 2003 in Haver, Montana. Haver, Montana is this piece of shit town, less than 10,000 people. And it's about 40 miles south of the Canadian border. Well, where the academy was at that I went to, uh, it's called the Anchor Academy. Anchor Academy for Young Men. It was based seven miles south of the Canadian border. So we'd fly into like Great Falls, travel for two and a half hours to Haver, and then have a 30-minute drive up to the academy. Now, the academy was on a 90-acre old Cold War radar base. I, I used to know the uh, the wing of uh, the Air Force that was stationed there. I don't know it anymore. 
Um, but it was one of the old ones. If you saw pictures, it's like this really, the main thing that you could see is this really tall five-story gray square tower. And back in the seventies, there was this massive dome that was on it. And that was the radar. And, um, at the time that they had got it, the actual radar mechanics had been taken out and it was just a shell of a tower. And uh, they had all these other buildings. You could see where uh, the people that were based there lived. Uh, they had little cul-de-sacs and things. Most of the houses were torn down, uh, but they did still have a few houses there. Um, so before I get into <laughs> my experience in getting sent there, uh, I'll, I'll tell you guys a little bit about what happened prior to me getting there. So... It's considered a reform school. It is for, quote unquote, bad kids. A lot of them were some serious, hard motherfuckers that got sent there. Um, and then a lot of them weren't. They were uh, a lot like me. They, you know, didn't tell their mom that they were going to take out the trash too many times. And, uh, you know, they got sent away as a liability. But to preface my my journey there, it was a little bit different. Uh, most of these kids were uncontrollable, or at least a lot of them were, at least to the families. Many of them came from broken homes. They grew up on the streets. Uh, the biggest provider of students, I guess you could say, was a uh, organization called SPOT down in Modesto. Um, in Modesto, SPOT, S-P-O-T-T, -T, it stood for Supporting Parents of Troubled Teens. And it was not a Christian organization. It was a community uh, organization for the amount of drugs and other things that were kind of flowing through uh, that area, the Stockton Modesto area. And um, so a lot of these parents, they would reach out and find these homes that could get them out of their element. They didn't have a choice on being able to run away. Uh, and they would basically have to go there for at least a year. It was a one year minimum program. Well, a lot of these kids, their parents would think about it too late the organization would not accept a student that was over his 17th birthday because that minimum one year would come after their 18th birthday. And so they would have to be just under 17 years old to be accepted. Um, usually the students range between 14 and 16. Uh, but we did have one kid there who I'm actually still friends with uh, who was 12 when he got sent there. And we did have other students that they came there really close to their 17th birthday. And um, they did have an entire graduation thing. They had a school. It was uh, we had dorms. Uh, the building that was previously considered a commissary was where our locker rooms, showers and the big uh, dining facility and kitchen was at. So. <laughs> how I got sent there was um we i had turned 13 joe turned 17 and uh we had gotten in trouble and i i need to i need to explain that when i say it's a christian-based organization i don't just mean these are people that go to church um these are people that they believe only one version of the bible is right the 1611 we've talked about that and, on the show before their version their version yeah it is, is right. their version yeah. it is the only version Anything else is a perversion, as they would say. So um, they had very, very weird. And now it's looking back. It's funny because growing up in that, I, I just thought, you know, my parents are strict and they're Christians. That's why they're different. And then looking back, I'm like, yeah, most Christians don't operate this way. Um, 
they picked and choose what they would do. So like Joe and I have explained before, we weren't allowed to listen to any music with drums in it unless it was orchestral uh, percussion like timpanis. Um, the beat had to be set at a certain thing that didn't make you want to dance. Uh, we weren't allowed to, <laughs> we weren't allowed to, uh, ever look at girls. And there's going to be a lot of like really, really gay religious, uh, uh, kind of terminology that I'm going to have to throw in here. One only way I can describe it. Um, but there was, you weren't allowed, we weren't allowed to have girlfriends. We weren't allowed to say that we liked girls. We weren't allowed to say that we were attracted to them. Um, there was this whole thing of God brings you together. It's this pseudo force that just draws you to each other. And it was still very much popular that when it came to the ladies or the girls in the families of this church kind of community, that they stayed at home until the parents picked out their husband and uh, it had so to be quick, done. Uh, it had to be, it this, had to be done with what? Uh, I said real quick though, this, this, what we're talking about now, we've talked about on the show a million times, but this is a little, right. little more detail into it. We, everyone knows we grew up pretty strangely, but uh, they don't realize how strange even I surprised Jen every once in a while with, how strange it was to yeah. grow up. In I didn't house. know you were homeschooled too. I was like, oh, were you homeschooled? Right. And I made a joke and he was like, yeah, for my yeah. whole life. Yes. It was like when we first met too. I was like, oh, <laughs> actually awesome. What was it like? And he's oh, like, ah, okay. I'm moving, I'm moving 2,000 miles to a homeschooler. Okay. <laughs> um, I made sure to tell her that after she already moved here and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. That's not true. It was when you, when I came to visit you is when I joked with you about it. It was like our first meeting. Well, you don't tell the <laughs> you don't tell the fish that you're gonna fry it up before they've taken the bait. Yeah, um, no, he told me right away. But anyway, yeah, hook, line, and boner. <laughs> hook, line, and boner. So, uh, yeah, so not there were there was just a lot of really weird stuff. They didn't believe in dancing. And when you would get into an argument about people dancing in the Bible, they said, well, per the times and customs of that, it would be more like a whirling dervish, which is like a guy in a big flowy skirt. And they just kind of go around like this Where's and it makes it's fucking anyway, they had a they had a thing for everything <laughs> and they would take uh, verses out of context and then tell other people not to take the verses out of context. And there was just a lot of uh, uh, hypocritical thinking and uh double standard when it came to that uh, fuck oh, those honkies sorry oh no you're fine <laughs> um so th that was one thing but the problem is is that this was also coming out of a 70s and 80s era that started picking up a lot on homeschooling because the homeschooling and christian kind of sect was sick of the whole push for evolution in the school system evolutionists and creationists have been butting heads for forever and they started adopting less of a uh, creationist or uh, Christian side in the curriculum and started implementing more of Darwinism and evolution. So a lot of kids in the 70s and 80s were getting pulled out and started homeschooling. That's exactly what happened to our little brothers and sisters prior to Joe and I even being around. And uh, so we, we were born into a family that we were Christian. We weren't allowed to do jack shit. Um, technology, for the most part, was bad. Um, and all of our friends were at church and raised the exact same way. They didn't know anything. All of their families had the same beliefs. They all preached from the same church, read the same Bible. It, it was the it quintessential, was, uh, echo chamber. <laughs> yeah. It, it, other than all living on the, you know, living in, in one massive mansion and, uh, 
drinking Kool-Aid, you know, basically it was a cult. But it was a larger widespread kind of cult mindset. Um, And I won't go into some of the like ATI or any of that stuff because that's kind of benign. But um, long story short, this was how we were raised. So our older brothers and sisters, they started getting out. They started, you know, finding out that, oh, listening to rock music isn't bad. Um, Being able to date somebody without just only wanting to fuck like bunnies isn't bad. And if we do fuck, uh, that's also not bad. So as they started figuring this out, they started trickling down the information to me and Joe. So me and Joe's eyes to this whole kind of church scenario got opened way, way wider at a way earlier age than uh, our older brothers and sisters had the opportunity to. So by six to eight years old, Joe and I were sneaking our little radio and listening to Mandy Morse Candy and Britney Spears and all the late (laughs) mid to late 90s bubblegum pop shit that was going on in the local radio station that we you know thought we were so cool doing and uh we started getting caught for this stuff that they didn't like and we would get in big trouble uh we weren't allowed to be alone uh you know this type of thing they they didn't want any of it so i can't tell you how many times they stole my fucking creed cds i I know three times i think a lot of this too is because (laughs) your older siblings your older siblings, when they realized, besides one of them, the two oldest were like, fuck this, peace out, I'm done, bye. And your parents were like, oh my gosh, we lost control. So they harped down on the control with you and Joe. Right. And that's a, that's a different psychological aspect, too, because at the same time that that was happening and was very true, what ended up happening was they, the older brothers and sisters, they had been in, in embedded with this massive guilt for leaving. They got blamed as soon as they left as the reason before it ever happened, why the other kids were not gonna be going on the same path that they wanted this to. So it was this horrible duality for both the oldest two because they're they're the trailblazers, they're leaving this family, they're going against everything that they were taught to believe. They're, every time that they would do something that they had been raised for 20 years told that they were literally going to hell for, that they're, they weren't saved. It, it's this very fear-based religion and application of it where it, I, I get why like now it still bothers them in a lot of ways because the, they're all of their for, you know, formidable years there, they are formative. Uh, they were told that this is the way that you have to live if you want to go to heaven. And if not, you are going to burn for the rest of eternity in a lake of fire and leaving the family the way that you did. And for the reasons that they did, that was your fault that the younger kids were going to end up a certain way. And so it was, it was horrible for both of them. And not to mention there we had in most of the families that we knew, we had very, very strong sibling ties. Um, we, me and Joe, especially, we were the youngest two. Uh, the two above us were girls. They were very close. And, uh, and then there was Blair, you know, that fucker at the top. So, um, <laughs> but Joe and I relied on each other as a result of kind of getting fed information from Blair and uh, Karen. So now we're starting to get closer to where I would be going to the academy. It's around 2000. We've been getting in trouble. We're <laughs> influencing friends at church to do the wrong, naughty things. Saying and, the F word in front of oh, other people. Fuck off. So bad. And, uh, you know, we started getting blamed by all these other parents for our bad influence on their children. 
which honestly we fucking loved the notoriety for that. So um, things started to just progress. I, it's the same thing with any kid. The older you get, the mischief becomes more serious. The consequences become graver. And so as this started going on, my parents obviously started bucking and kicking and they would have given up. But our, our middle sister, she made sure that she did every single thing and she she genuinely believed and i don't fault my sister at all for this she is to this day one of the best humans and i'll get into more of why i'm saying that a little bit later but she is one of the most solid steady people i've ever met and now she has opened her eyes a lot to the way that we were raised um and if i were to say that there is somebody that i would represent as the face of what a real christian is it's her it's her and her husband and uh that 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 ended up not being the case though at the time that we were younger she fed into everything had no idea all she knew is that karen got married really young and was already having a baby and blair was doing his own thing and living a carnal vain life and all of this shit and she didn't want to disappoint her parents like that so or god because again this was very very strong that she was going to disappoint god and therefore she would have to check whether or not she was actually saved because you shall know them by your fruits. And so that was their anchor. That middle child was their anchor because it gave them hope that they weren't doing the wrong thing. And as a result of Blair and Karen leaving, it's exactly what Jen said. The rules got a lot tighter. <laughs> so rather than it going the other way, which is where a lot of times you're harder on the, on the firstborn. And then as you have practice, uh, you end up going, oh, okay, these aren't that big of a deal. You get older, the more kids you have, you get more uh, mature and patient. And so you let things slide a little bit. And then the older kids usually a little bit bitter and like, you were way fucking tougher on me. And the parents usually come back with something stupid like, well, I just really wanted to make you sure that you succeeded. And um, as the rules got a little bit tougher, Joe and I had a completely different approach because unlike the older two who got exposed to this later on, Joe and I were getting fed that exposed information at a way younger age. And we started dabbling in a way younger age. And uh, by about 2003, no, yeah, 2003, I turned 13, Joe turned 17. And at this point, we are doing everything that we can to live how we want uh, and not get caught. That was the end of it. Which is um, hilarious well, because I was very bad about being a criminal. I got caught all the time that's all what i would say too i get caught for everything man like i just get caught for everything <laughs> I, I've... your family's horrible at getting caught for shit. <laughs> yeah this fucker up here he goes and does Every way more wanted... than i've ever done and never got popped <laughs> he should be in jail for like 25 years and he's never gotten caught and he stole my vocation no, I'm joking. The, um, the only thing that's ever on my record is a guard card from Johnny's. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, yeah, I yeah. forgot about that. So story. Thir 13 and 17 roll around. Joe is now, oh, my God, I got one year left of fucking hanging out. And then I'm gone. And around just after our birthdays, <laughs> we started, uh, along with some of our friends that are now around the same age, started stealing alcohol uh from places that we could get it from and I, i'm talking like nasty ass shit like when they were selling one dollar bottles at the dollar tree some boone's farm 
some yeah, just the worst. And not even two bucks Chuck, which is actually decent. Like it was no, this bad, is like... so bad though that I oh hang on, I'm not even on screen. Uh it, it was so bad that the place I worked at at the time, I won't name it, but it was my dad's work and he'd been there for 25 years or something and his boss always kept bottles of shit in the fridge at work and i'm 15 16 and i'm like oh this is this is easy i just snatched some of that so the one i always remember getting was i stole a smirnoff ice um and it was like wow that tastes delicious and then uh i was like i wonder what this hard liquor tastes like so i stole some um i can't remember it was some liqueur or something it was uh, started with a d can't remember what it was called but it was nasty and i I remember being at work, taking a little like styrofoam cup of it in into the uh, bathroom and trying to drink it. And I was like, Whoa, this is fucking, how do people drink this shit? Uh, it got, it gets easier people. Let me just tell you that. Yeah. So yeah, this, uh, that actually was a segue. Perfect. What? And then it gets harder again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then it goes back down the yeah. other way as your liver. It's real easy. Drinking. And then man, there's a peak and whoo. I know Woo-hoo. you go down. If, you go. If, you, if you're Ben, there's quite the long plateau too. And then, it yeah, just, it's just a long uh, plateau of blackouts. So um, <laughs> as we get a little, a couple months into that, we're getting into the early 2004 and Joe and I, well, let me put it this way. Joe decided that one of these bottles at work, he was going to just take the fuck home. And so he took an entire handle of gin home. Now we didn't know what we were doing to be fair. And so he ends up bringing this home. We're hiding it in our closet. My parents have no idea. Well, guess what? Neither do we. We don't, we've never even heard the term alcohol poisoning. So you kind of know where the story is going to go. Joe decides of all things to mix the, what I can only describe as a Christmas tree flavor, fucking liquor in with vanilla Coke. I didn't know what I was Yum, doing. That okay? sounds really no, good. It was, I would love no, it so bad. Gross. But I tried drinking the gin straight first. I'm 16 or something sitting that sounds gross. on the floor in my room and just trying to drink it. I'm like, this is so bad. So I, I walked out in front of my mom, grab a cup of uh, vanilla Coke or Pepsi vanilla or whatever, take it back to my room. And I dump some of that in there. And I'm like, oh, this is way more manageable. So I proceeded to just start slugging like crazy. And you don't realize when you're that young, uh, how much alcohol catches up to you at a certain point. Right. So I'm drinking this this ass water and it uh i i definitely blacked out because ben told me some shit i don't remember doing so well and that's that's what i'm gonna get into so this is kind of a fun story and also not uh at all so because this is the this was a major catalyst this is a major catalyst in what ended up happening throughout that next year because i i was in the academy by the end of that next year within about nine ten months so Joe's drinking and we gauged by about how much was by about how much was there the next morning uh, that he had had probably 13 shots in a matter of about 20 minutes. And he's barely (laughs) 17 years old. And the problem was, is that we're doing this by candlelight. We were very, very smart. We we would not only shut the door because of the cats. No, we were. We would shut the door because of the cats and we put a floor fan in front of the door to block the noise on the other side so our parents couldn't hear it. And we knew that all of the clothes in the closet, which is what the wall that separated from our parents would dampen the noise. Like we had all of this shit worked out. And so we're sitting there with a fucking like flashlight. You remember the old ones or not the old ones, but like the mag lights you take off the top and it looks like a candle. So we would do that and just set it on the nightstand 
because it wouldn't go through the floor. And we're sitting on our floor talking about our rock CDs. We were so cool. We're drinking fucking gin and vanilla Coke. I have probably three or four shots worth and I'm feeling real good. And uh, <laughs> at this point, Joe starts getting louder and louder. He's talking about walking in. He's talking about walking into my parents' room and telling them, fuck them, throwing the CDs at them. Like he's doing all this weird shit. And now I'm starting to get scared. I'm paranoid. I'm drunk. I'm 13. I shouldn't be doing this. So I keep telling Joe, we need to go to bed. And he's like, why? I'm having fucking fun. And I'm like, dude, we need to go to bed. We need to go to bed. You're going to get us caught. And so I cap the bottle. I put it back in the, in the thing and we go to bed. The next thing I hear is nothing but Joe hurling inside <laughs> the bed and it's dark. Well, the problem was, is that he was so drunk and already unconscious that he's throwing up straight and coming back down. And so I was worried that he was going to choke. So I just run in because I was thinking now I'm paranoid and I'm thinking to myself, like, what would I do if Joe was throwing up and we weren't drinking? I would go get mom. That's what I always did. So I go in and I get mom and she didn't she didn't smell anything, anything like that. All she said was, he's acting really strange, like he's on drugs. And my <laughs> dad, my dad's the one that smells it. And so now, at this point, I'm like, okay, do I just keep denying it? Because they're going to take him in to get, like, drug tested the next day. I already know my parents. They would do that. And so, or, or a breathalyzer, or have a cop show up at our house and say, blow in this, and, you know, all weird shit. Like, they would do that. So... I end up saying, all right, fine. Gigs up. I give the bottle to my parents and they're like, where'd you get it from? I said, honestly, I don't know. Joe got it. I wasn't going to say that he stole it from my dad's work, but I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm paranoid. I'm in tears. Joe's choking on himself, vomiting all over the place. And so I'm, I'm freaked out. And so I told my parents. So the next, the next morning, uh, we're all sitting there and, uh, waiting for Joe to wake up. I go and I take a shower in my parents' bathroom because Lorianne was in the main one. And I walk back out and Joe is not in the room and the fucking bedroom window's open. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay. So I don't say shit. I don't say anything. I just kind of go back out of the living room. I'm like, let's see how much time he can get ahead. And hey, uh, in my defense, I was very prepared. I grabbed a backpack with like a pair of underwear and pants and maybe my skateboard or something. And was like, all right, I'm I will out. say that's ballsy for having a hangover. Oh, I was, like probably your first awful. hangover and being like, you know what? I'm going to go do shit. I definitely was still <laughs> like, drunk. You didn't when I give up because I didn't start feeling like real you, ass until later. That's awesome, though. I, <laughs> yeah, he definitely was still wake up drunk, liquid courage, Joe. And so. He decided, well, fuck this. I'm caught. He sees the bucket. He checks the closet. There's no fucking booze. And he's like, fuck this. So he packs his bag, jumps out the window, and starts heading down the opposite dirt road. Well, my dad walks in. He had taken the fucking day off for this because um, of us doing the bad stuff. And he looks in the room. He's like, sees the window. Sees, oh, shit. Joe's gone. And so he walks out and he's like, Joe left. And I'm like, he did? And my dad's like, you didn't know? I said, no, I just got out of the shower and came straight out here. I thought he was still sleeping. So long story short, Joe, we end up finding Joe. Joe comes back. They invited the pastor of our church down. He's talking to Joe and the parents. All of this stuff goes down. And from that point on, we kind of knew that we were fucked. There was nothing that we were going to be able to do. Well, we decided 
well, if we can't do it here, we're going to leave. So we would go out for the weekend. We would finish our school on Friday because, you know, that was at home. And Joe would find someone to come pick us up or we would hitchhike and we would run down our parents' road. We would tell my mom because my dad was at work. Hey, we'll be back on Monday morning for school. And she's like, where are you going? And we would say at one point, Joe was like, yeah, I'm going to go fishing and, you know, just dumb shit. And so like we would leave and we would go over to Blair's house. And I'm not shitting you. Most of the time we didn't drink and we didn't smoke. All we wanted to do was watch movies, listen to music and hang out with our brother. That's it. That's all we wanted. Hi, Lance. How you doing, buddy? Good to hide. Uh, good. I don't know well, but hello. Well, I miss you, old man. Good to see you. So long story short is we end up going out on weekends. And I think on the second weekend, Monday mornings or Sunday nights rolling around and Blair was going to take me back home, drop me off at the end of the road. And I asked Joe, I'm like, hey, what time do we need to be back tomorrow? And Joe's like, yeah, I'm not going back. I'm like, okay. So all in one glorious moment, not only are we going back, but now I'm going back by myself. And I'm like, fuck. So next morning rolls around. Blair takes me home. I, I He had barely driven off. And Joe had pierced my ear that weekend. And I was wearing a chain and a band shirt. And so I just oh, looked like evil. all of the things in the early 2000s that my parents hated. You basically so, made a What's that, babe? You basically made a checklist of everything my parents hated. And were like, yeah. <laughs> now today would be a douche. I, I, I couldn't hear you, Bailey, because Joe was repeating what he was saying. No, 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 you're fine. Possessed by Satan, you were. Oh, yes, 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 yes. yes. Very badly. So I don't even get into the long dirt road. And my parents are driving down the road because my dad's going to work and my mom needed the car. So my dad rolls down the window. And he's like, nice earring. I'm all, thank you. He goes, you better have that out when I get home and drives off. And I'm like, neat. So I walk back home. Don't take out the earring. And uh, my mom gets back later and you can just tell she doesn't want to talk to me. She doesn't want to look at me. She wants to wait until my dad gets home to have this conversation. Whatever. That's fine. So I do. I started on my schoolwork. I'm like, yeah, it's a normal day. Fuck it. I'm going to be responsible. So I do my school. I start playing on the computer. My mom says, you're not allowed on the computer. And I'm like, okay. So I go back and read books, which is what we, a lot of, we did a lot. We read books because it was the only thing to take us the fuck away from there. So my dad gets home. He says, take out the earring or I'm going to rip it out with pliers. I said, okay. So I take out the earring and I give it to him. And he looks at the chain around my neck and goes, you know, chains are assigned to bondage, right? And I go, exactly. And he's like, take it off or I'm going to rip it off. And I said, okay. So I undo it and I hold it out for him to grab. Right, right as he's reaching out, I drop it on the floor. And he yells at me, pick it up. I'm like, fine. So I pick it up. I put it in his hand. I was a little shit, but it's fine. So he ends up, they don't really talk to us, but long story short, he ends up relaying information. And this is why this was important. He ends up telling me, you know, it really doesn't matter anymore. If you don't shape up, you're going to be sent away. And so I'm th sitting there thinking, I'm like, well, I don't want that either. Fuck. So for about six months, I minded my P's and Q's. 
My parents were much happier with me. <sighs> and then finally I went, you know what? I don't fucking care anymore. I'm going to leave. So I did. I started going out on weekends again by myself. And I would go to Blair's house. Every single time we left, you're muted, Jen. Oh, sorry. Oh. I, yeah. How, how old are you? What were you saying? How old, how old were you at this time? I was about two months shy of 14. Okay. So, Just wondering. Yeah. And uh, Joe's coming up on his 18th birthday. I'm coming up on my 14th birthday. So I, uh, I start leaving on weekends. And my dad reiterates this to me that they're going to send me away. They have a place to send me. And so at this point, I go, well, if it doesn't matter what I do, whether I go or stay, they're going to send me. Thanks for telling me that. I'm just going to leave and see how long of a run I can take. And so I leave. And about five days later, long story short, every single time Joe and I left, they called the cops and put us in for runaway. So now we're in the RPD system as runaway teens. Which and was real although, fun when I went to go get my CCW. He's like, you show up a lot on our records. I'm like, for fucking what? He's like, right. uh, run away, run away. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a whole story, dude. Um, I don't have time to get into that. Is that a crime? Running away? It's not a, it's not a crime. They can't cite you because you're a minor. You're not liable for your own actions. So what they do, though, is they open up an investigation. And once they catch you, the the first this is also back, you know, when officers had a lot more power to just kind of discern in the moment whether or not charges needed to be pressed. Their hands weren't tied on certain actions that made them have to do things. And so they would take and a lot less cameras and stuff. So they would take me home and just basically say, what's going on? They talk to the parents. They talk to me. And they'd say, okay, let's try to work together and resolve this. No, you're not going to get any charges or anything like that. Well, on this particular night, uh, when I got sent home, Joe had just left. And some of his friends were hanging around. And Joe was not into uh, the best substances at that point. So these cops show up, and it's a 12- and 14-year veteran narcotics agents. And they happen to know Joe's friend by name. And he's super sketched out because he's high as fuck. Uh, and Blair is inside partying, but with alcohol, there's no drugs at this point. Weed was still super taboo. So there was no weed. There was no, nothing else, just alcohol. And so when he they showed up on the porch, that pot was like terrible. Like he, he finally smoked pot one time, our older brother. And I was like, I'm so proud of you. Cause he always called me the pothead. Cause I'd be sitting at right. his house and his dog high and shit. I'm like, Hey, he likes it. Okay. The dog wants to get high. And he's like, you fucking pothead. You know? And like, he was well, of age, alcoholic. we should mention too, Blair was of age with the alcohol. He could buy it at this point. Right. Yeah, yeah. Him and all of his friends were, you know, nearing 30. And so they they would do it that. And it, to be fair, there was a lot of times that Blair would let me and Joe have one beer or one shot. And his, his argument, which I actually stand by, was if you're going to go out and you've had your mindset on doing it, you're going to do it and it's not going to be where I can watch you. So I would rather you have a shot or have a beer with me in the house then know that you're doing it to excess out there with God knows who on the streets. I don't want that. Bad things can happen. Okay, Which is fair exactly enough. the opposite of how your parents raised yes, you. They were like, I'm exactly. going to control shit out of you. Blair is an example of someone. So just real quick, but he's no, an example it. of someone. A lot of times when people are raised in an abusive household or in a very extreme environment like you guys were, they turn out to eventually be that same way. And mm -hmm. he did not he did everything he could to be like fuck that i'm never doing that i've seen him allow i mean 
his kiddo who's like 16, 17, he's let her have a drink before. He's like, you mm -hmm. can have one. That's fine. And you're here. You're staying here. You're not fucking driving. And it's not because he's like encouraging it. He's just like, I know you're going to fucking do it. I'd rather have no, you be and, here and be safe. And this actually, this is actually a testament to how that works because um, when his daughter, our niece, went down with me on one of the trips down to base to collect a lot of my stuff, I had told Blair, hey, are you going to be upset? I'll probably be drinking with Jeremiah. Is she allowed to have a beer or a White Claw or something if she's hanging out with us? And he's like, yeah, that's fine. I don't give a fuck. So I end up asking her, hey, do you want me to go grab like just a six pack of White Claw and you can have like two tonight and two tomorrow? And she replied, actually, don't worry about getting me anything. I'm used to drinking around my parents and I'm not really comfortable drinking outside the house. And I went, Perfect. that is exactly how it should be. And so I'm, so you, you know, in my see, mind, uh, for the listeners, you can see why we are. So we grew up so anti-authoritarian totalitarian <laughs> um, because yeah. we basically grew up in North Korea and Kim Jong mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Kim, doing Kim that Jung though, creates, create, <laughs> that creates the worst people though. It just perpetuates the cycle of being like, I need control. I need control, but I don't have it. And you're never going to get control. By demanding it. Well, it was funny it too though, because we didn't demand like crazy stuff. I wasn't no. like, you need to let us drink in your house or something. I'm like, can I just own my own like music and can just you not fuck song? with it and steal it every two weeks? Like, that's or all. Go to all school and have normal friends or be able be allowed to sleep over at a friend's house without it having to constantly be knowing that their parents were the exact same way as our parents. Like, we weren't allowed to say heck or dang or any of that type of stuff either. And so it was you know, like, you know, you know what that bread though? Are the sailor's mouths we have now because so we, that's what I was we're not about to say dang it or oh my gosh or anything. So look at us now. Okay. Like, so in a way, we ended up proving our parents you correct. social trends and, and you developed vocabulary that aids you in how to express yourself in a real world scenario. Absolutely. Crazy. It makes, it makes <laughs> the sentence just that much more colorful when done tastefully. So what ended up happening though was that we ended up proving our parents right in a lot of ways. And the problem is, is this, when the rules are set this far and this is normal and this is excess, when you break through those rules into what is normal, but that is considered wrong, you don't know where that line is actually at. So you end up breaking through this little system well within the spectrum of normal behavior, but you don't know where that actual line is at. And so what we ended up doing is we ended up finding out rock music's not bad. Uh, liking women is not bad. So then you go the opposite direction with it. I want to experience all the drinking, all the smoking, all of the girls. I want to do all of it all at the same time as much as I can. And we're 13 and 17. So and I go to jail when I'm 18. That's how that ended. Hey, I'm getting there, you fuck. So oh. I end up going home this night when the narcotics agents show up and Joe is gone and they ask Blair, Hey, we're actually looking for Joe too. And he's like two months away from being 18. They don't give a fuck about the fact that he's underage. They give a fuck about the fact that they've been following this guy that happens to be at Blair's house that Joe has been associated with. And so they want to talk to Joe to see if they can get to this guy, regular old roundabout kingpin kind of thing. And, uh, they ask Blair, you know, where's Joe? And he's like, well, he's not here. You're more than welcome to look inside the house. They see all the booze. They say, is anybody underage drinking? And he's like, no, I would never allow that. I love my brothers. I'm not trying to do that or that to myself. 
And so they were like, okay, fair enough. Yeah. And he like lets them walk around the house. They check under the beds. And they even asked Blair, like, he's not going to, like, jump out of a closet at us or something, right? And Blair's like, no, he's genuinely not here. Like, I have a text right here. He's, he said he would be back, you know, in about an hour. And so they're like, okay. Well, the cops come back out with me. And I looked at him. I said, do I have to go home? And they said, well, we're not going to lie to you. Yeah, you do. And I said, okay, I'll come. I'll come willingly. I'm not going to fight you on it. And they said, okay, great. So they they let me sit in the back seat, but they didn't handcuff me. They They didn't do any of that shit. And so this is the breaking point for me. I unload on the cops about my parents. I tell them most of these details about what we were and we're not allowed to do. We, we aren't allowed to have friends. It's a cult-like religious. We, we're homeschooled. We, we live on two acres outside the city limits. We have almost no neighbors at this point. And so I'm like, we don't, it's just us. And all we want to do is be able to listen to some music. Like even if, we would even have settled for Christian rock at that fucking point. Like anything that was just a little bit more upbeat and not Bach. So they Beethoven, ended up saying, you know, don't forget Beethoven. Oh, and Beethoven. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah, I ended up telling them all this and they said, well, we'll, we'll tell you what, we're going to talk to your parents. I said, okay. So they talked to my parents and while they're talking to my parents, Joe had arrived back at Blair's house, saw that the cops had taken me. And at that moment decided to rip my mom a new one on her cell phone over text. So while the cops are talking to them about, hey, maybe you should lighten up, let him have some friends, listen to some music, she gets this text from Joe. Oh, yeah, you had to send the cops when I wasn't there because you knew I wouldn't let him go, blah, 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 blah. My mom, I remember sitting in the back of the car and I remember my mom going like this to the officers. The officers read it, they hand the phone back, have a good night, <laughs> and they get back in the car and let me out. And I'm like, I'm like, what did, what just happened? So obviously as the younger brother, I'm like, I love the fact that Joe stood up for me and he didn't give a fuck what they thought. It just happened to be that kind of timing. But I also knew that it didn't matter because nothing the cops told them would have changed anything at all. And so I'm like, fuck. All right. So I go back inside the house. I wake up the next morning to all of my shoes gone, all of my clothes gone. The only thing I have are pink surgical scrubs that had Sharpie on the back that said, call 911. I'm a runaway on the back of it. And that's what, that's what they had me wear. I wasn't, I, I didn't have, I asked my mom, I'm like, where are the shoes? Like, am I not allowed to have shoes? And she's like, no, as a matter of fact, we talked to the officers and they said, it's an informal house arrest situation. And I went, awesome. Now at this point, my mom had taken both the, the cell phone and the home phone and had clipped them on her belt. She would sit in the center of the house on the step to see where I was going at all times wasn't allowed on the computer. I wasn't allowed anything. So I would just tell her, I'm going to go read a book. I'm going to go read a book. And so I'd go and I'd read a book and I'd sleep during the day and I'd do my schoolwork and that was it. Well, this only worked for about two days because I woke up the next day and realized I had a pair of basketball shorts. So rather than running out necky or in pink surgical scrubs, I took everything off. I put on my basketball shorts and bare-chested, barefooted, with my hat backwards and basketball shorts, sprinted the half a mile down my parents' dirt road and hitchhiked. Now, I got really lucky because I got picked up by this really sweet old lady who was old school. And she's she's got a pack of cigarettes in her little, like, Toyota tiny pickup. And I ask her, do you mind if I have one of those? I had balls, man. And she's like, yeah, if you're old enough to hitchhike. You're old enough to accept the consequences of your actions. Here you go. 
and I went, fucking, can you be my mom? Like, Jesus. So <laughs> she, she tells me. That was, a, that was a guardian angel, dude. Like, she's picked up a, a young yeah. person with no shirt, no shoes, no service, typically. But she was like, fuck it, who cares? Giving a member of Virginia Slim and shit. you a cigarette. You only got well, your mindset is, I should, I should be the one to pick him up because I know that I'm a good person, and who knows who else might try to pick him up. So let me help this kid out. So she says, well, in trade for the cigarette, I have to stop by my son and daughter-in-law's house for a minute. I said, okay, that's fine. So she just parks on the dirt road. She walks in. She got like a bag of clothes or something like that and walk, gets back to the truck. She said, okay, where are we going, sweetie? I said, oh, I got to go over to, you know, this address and it's over here. She says, okay, drives me over there. I show up with Joe outside, shocked that two days later, I'm showing back up bare chested, barefooted in some crazy lady's fucking truck. And he walks up and he's like, what the fuck are you doing here? And I was like, I can't. And I explained the whole surgical scrubs thing. And he's like, Jesus fucking Christ. All right, let's go inside. Go inside. We explain it to Blair. Blair's like, all right, so let's get a plan together. And we did. We got a plan together. And while my parents went to church, we knew exactly how to get into my parents' house without it being breaking and entering. Got all of my school books, as much clothes as I could. And we bounced. And so now I'm doing school. I don't know who, what fucking runaway does this, but I did it. I was doing school because I needed to keep up with it. And it was very important to Blair because his thing is that he's like, if and when the cops come again, I do not want them to charge me with restricting you from school. I'm like, okay, now as an adult, I'm like, ah, I was actually very smart. It was self-preservation, but it was also making sure that I continued in education. So I'm like, okay, that's fair. So we do this. I last about two months. I turned 14 and uh, about two weeks before Joe's 18th birthday, we got the news from our cousin Darren that he had bought all of us tickets to go see Breaking Benjamin in concert, like the old Breaking Benjamin, like the so cold Breaking Benjamin. And we were all stoked about it, it was going to be both Joe and I's first concert, except for the shitty local bands that used to play at Serendipity up there on Lake Boulevard. And, uh, oh my God, I forgot about that place. Yeah. Or the space. Remember the space over on Bocelli? That yeah, time. I never went to that one. I, I went and saw Sevens with you at Serendipity. Uh, uh, I, I barely remember any of those because I was high as fuck. So, <laughs> right. It, it was a lot, though. It's fine. I got you. So, uh, we, <laughs> so we're super stoked about this, right? Well, I end up finding out some information at this point. Blair, who is still friends with one of the older kids from one of the church families we knew. She had found out from her mom, who had talked to my mom, that the next time the cops caught me, I would be going to a reform school up in Montana. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, so it really doesn't matter what the fuck I do. I'm going away the next time I'm caught. So let's have a run of it. So at this point, Joe... Well, first of all, I dyed my hair midnight blue in the one inch by one inch spikes. I had black eyeliner on, all the black clothes, the chains. You know, I was just the bitch. I wasn't any better either. I mean, it's funny to make fun of Ben because it's hilarious, but I was not any fucking better. So, no, it wasn't. We have pictures to prove that. That was awful. (laughs) It's fine. So, at this point, I look like a tard and. There was also a moment around this time that Joe said, let's shave your head. And I went, okay. And so he buzzed it all off and then bicked it with no shaving cream. 
So the next day, my whole head looks like an off-white, flame-red, razor-burned, fucking nasty-ass Q-tip. Dude, that's what and, happens when you let a tweaker cut your hair. Yeah, and that's when and Blair Joe, started calling him chemo. Joe <laughs> decided, well, let's put on some of this suntan lotion. So now my head is bright fucking orange. And so I just walked around with a beanie for like a week. And uh, until my hair just started to get enough that it was soft. And uh, it was around this time that... Joe and I decide we're going to go to the mall and uh, we had some friends that were going to meet us there and uh, we're outside. And as I'm hanging out outside, Joe had to walk in and go to J- JC Penny. Now I know I, I'm not going to describe the layout for you guys because for the listeners, but long story short, he walks into JC Penny and he happens to see my mom and sister shopping at JC Penny. Well, they see him too, but they don't see him with me. Well, they made a good guess that I'd be with him. They go to the security office in the mall and say, hey, I think our runaway son is out there, out in the food court. And they're like, who is it? And they point to the fucking board where the flyer from the RPD was with all my name and description and picture. So I decide, or we were about to leave, and I had bummed a cigarette from our friend, and we start walking. And Joe and one of our other friends is up in front of me, and I'm walking behind them. And I happen to see around him one of the mall security guys walking straight towards them. And it wasn't like a normal patrol walk. It was a very pointed walk. I'm like, shit, I turn behind me and another one's coming up behind me. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay. So I run up to Joe and I say, hold this, hold this, hold this, hold this, hold this. And it's a cigarette. And he looks at me like, what are you fucking doing, man? He was in a conversation with his friend. Didn't think twice about the security guard in front of him. Didn't see the one behind him. Well, they sandwich me. And well, like, and these are these are mall cops. Quick side note: these are not. I would be yeah. actually at that age more scared of mall cops because those motherfuckers are hungry for some action. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. They're himself. trying to they're trying to get those uh, those credits while they go for administration of justice to get in the uh, police academy. So they sandwich me and they're like, "Put down the cigarette." So before I put it down, like the little punk I was, I took a fat drag, dropped it, smushed it out, blew the smoke in their face, which they did not oh, like. Oh. Yeah, pretty much. And they said, well, you're, they said, you're too young to be smoking and definitely too young to be running away. We need to take you in a security office. And I said, okay, I'm walking now through the entire front of the mall, looking like an emo freak with two mall security guards back into the mall. Not like I had left with some product, got caught. No, like I'm walking back into the mall. And our friend that we had just seen at the table points at me and really loudly laughs, not thinking anything about what was actually about to transpire. So they take me to the back security spot. My mom and sister are there. And my sister makes a a dumb comment about nice eyeliner. You look like a girl. And I went, yep. And you're that's about the first negative comment I've gotten. Most everybody else likes it. And she's like, okay, well, they have one of our friends my parents friends one of the other dads in the church he shows up my dad gets off work well one of our mutual friends uh she had seen this whole thing go down and uh this was a friend that actually hung out with us at blair and joe's and she's i think 18 or 19 at this point and she is livid blair was out on a houseboat so she gets a hold of blair and explains the situation he's like i'm on my way fucking back tell joe not to do anything stupid and Mm -hmm. She is standing right outside the security office door. And every time they would open the door, she would start yelling at these cops. What do you think you're doing taking 
a child. Like, like, and I get now, like from everybody's point of view, like, okay, yeah, I get it too. They were doing their job and I was fucking 14 from her though. She knew, all the, she knew all the stories in the current climate that was going on. And so she was like, no, you can't send him back there. Blah, 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 blah. This is what's going on. I tried to, and they didn't want to hear it. They're like, are you related? And she's like, no, they're like, then fuck off basically. So <laughs> My dad shows up, our family friend shows up, and I am now sandwiched in the back of my car between my dad and this other big-ass bastard. We hey, get home. Is- yeah. We get home. They had taken off all the doorknobs inside the house <laughs> so that I couldn't lock myself inside of a room. They had put a chair next to the bed, and all of the furniture was cleared out. And they said, we're going to spend the night here, and then tomorrow we're going to drive up to Montana. And I went, okay. So th- this guy and my dad took half hour shifts sitting in the chair all night to make sure that I didn't leave. Well, at one point I got some balls and I made a run for it. The problem was the back door to the garage had half its handle missing. And so I, I couldn't unlock it and, and open it in time. He picks me up like he can come up behind me. He puts his arm around my neck, puts his fist in my back and lifts me up like this. Brings me into the living room, slams me down on the ground, you know, Ch- uh, fucking chicken arms me and says, if you do this again, I'm going to hog tie you all the way to Montana. And so now I'm like, well, That's fuck. so fucked up. These Sorry. are crazy is, people. This yeah. is so fucked up. This is such a grasping at straws for control. It's disgusting. They're taking lessons from their Bible. So I get it. Not like they have to worry boy. about him being this big to big guy. Like, yeah, 14. Yeah. So yeah, they I'm, call. I'm a big dude and your dad makes me look small. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And all, uh, all doing, Ben, at the end of the day, was just not doing what they wanted you to do. That's why it's so gross. Like you weren't really, yeah. you weren't yeah. doing drugs. You weren't even drinking. You were just not falling in line. And they were like, "Fuck you! I'm gonna hog tie you. I'm gonna rip the chain off your neck, or I'm gonna rip the earring out of your ear with pliers." Those are disgusting things that a parent should never, ever threaten a child with. That's gross. I'm actually all for spankings, but that's kind of over the top. Mm. Well, it's a de- it's a desperate display for self-expression in an environment where no- none is allowed. You're not exactly. allowed to present yourself well. You're not allowed to speak. You're not allowed to cry. You're not allowed to do this. You're not. You have no freedom to express any kind of self-interest or self kind of uh, acquisition of the world around you. And when that happens to people, they rebel. And when they rebelled, well, they rebelled harder than they would have if you would have been like, yes. you know what? Listen to Creed. That's that's the not being able to find the social line of what is acceptable. And it goes hand in hand with that. It was because if we got upset about something that my parents didn't feel like we should be upset about, it was you are not allowed to be upset about it. So it wasn't about, hey, I'll I understand. something to be upset about. Yeah, exactly. I'll leave knuckle marks on your forehead. That this is like the Chinese Communist Party, though. This is CCP oh, shit, like where the social credit yeah. score, the line for the social credit <laughs> score is not clear. Like, you could go and do anything in China, and they have no idea. Like, they don't even know why their social credit score dropped. They're like, right. uh, I didn't even know. But well, the they, th- there's no line. That's the point. So this is what it ended up progressing to, though, was that it, was, it ended up becoming a point where without our parents ever knowing we would have an emotion and feel guilty for having the emotion all internal, no talking, nothing to where we got to the point where it was like, oh, my gosh, if I'm having this emotion over this, that means that I may not be saved. Like 
that 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 was this was like a normal thing was that it was like I shouldn't be allowed to have this emotion because if I'm having this emotion, then I'm reacting to this the incorrect way. And that's not all right. So how the fuck my family replicate that without the religion? God damn, they have <laughs> friends. So they end up calling the officer that was handling my runaway case, which hilariously, his last name was Love. No shit. It was B Love. His first name was B something. So they call Officer Love and he talks to me on the phone. He's like, look, man, we don't want to have to use. And now I knew he was just bullshitting me. He was just fluffing me, but I didn't know better at the time. He's like, we will have a, uh, what do you call it? An escort. And you'll go up it in handcuffs in the cruiser up to Montana. And I'm like, now I'm like, yeah, it's a little out of your jurisdiction there, bud. But all right. So back then I thought it was completely serious. And so I'm like, fine, I'll fucking go. Like, okay. So get in the car. We're on our way to Montana. Some of the things that the other guys endured there before I got there wasn't something I never had to deal with. So I'll give you a couple of stories before I get into the entrance of this academy thing. And it was these guys one time didn't do what they were supposed to do. I don't remember if it was cleaning or whatever. So they dumped a 10 pound bag of rice on the floor. They had them wear shorts and said, you will crawl on your hands and knees until every grain of rice is picked up. And it, they said that these, these, you know, like five to 10 kids, it took them about four and a half hours and they weren't allowed to stand. So they had to be crawling on their hands and knees to pick up all this rice. And, uh, there were other things. They had this uh, thing called weekend duty. Weekend duty was like a 10 hour PT session. Kids were passing out. They were, you know, throwing up, they were getting heat exhaustion, and then they would just kind of help them back. And if you did this, it was like every weekend, every weekend, there was this 10 hour PT session. On top of that, it was a lot, a lot more harder labor than what I had when I was there, when it actually came to the physical work program that they had set up. So these guys, they had this uh, terminology called slamming. Slamming is where you got physical um, when you weren't supposed to, and they would slam you on the ground and, you know, basically jujitsu the shit out of you until you were subdued. Now, what I didn't know when I got there was why nobody really said anything about it. They transfer guardianship to the superintendent. So I am now legally his kid. Now, what's fucked up about this was about a month before I got caught, I had called my aunt up in Oregon and she said, I'm going to call your dad. Yeah, I know you don't want me to, but I'm going to call your dad and see if he'll transfer guardianship to me. You can live a normal life. I'll let you go to school. You can have your music and a girlfriend. And if, if that's something you want to do, I said, I would love that, especially to get out of Reading. My dad said, no, absolutely not. Of course. Why, why would I transfer guardianship? to my because sister. Why would he relinquish control? That means that you won. Right. It's, so it's all about control. But like, so I then, mean, and you know, this so then too, he, all he, he transfers guardianship to virtually an, a complete stranger that they've never met. Who's the superintendent. And so a lot of the gray areas so is where they got away with this because now you're legally his kids. So some of the physical contact was okay under the laws because they were legally their kid. And so the slammings and things like that, I never got slammed. Um, and I don't think I'm I slammed. That out. Thank you. Thank you for that sound. What's bite. that? 
So thank you for that soundbite. That's gross. I've never been then, just the fact that you say that, I'm sorry. Like I said earlier, this is a therapeutic show. The fact that you can say, I never got slammed, that means other people did that you knew about. And that was a that's oh, yeah. terminology that you know is a thing that happened. That's disgusting that your parents would send you there. It's fucking well, disgusting. And there was a situation that happened shortly before I arrived there. I think they said it was like six months. Um, there was a gay student. And of course, this is a highly religious. You're going to hell if you're a homosexual establishment. So every now and again, we would have a couple of gay friends or uh, gay students that would come in and they would just rip them up one side and down the other saying you can't be saved if you're a homosexual and all this stuff. So there was a situation where one of the students had a sexual relationship with one of the male staff members who was also gay and nobody knew it. So they were like fucking in the showers and shit. Well, at one point, a student caught them. And so the gay student, not the one who caught them, but the gay student said he was raping me. And that guy got sent to prison. So the gay student gets kicked out and that guy gets sent to prison, even though it was consensual. It doesn't matter. He's a minor. So still gross. So, still gross. Still should go to prison. Still a thing. So what's that? How old was the kid? I think he was 16 or 17. How old was the man? I think 23 or 24. That kid was being raped. It, it, okay. It wouldn't matter, even if the kid was 18. Like, yeah. That's still guardianship over that. Like That's, that's a person that's watching with that. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. That's why everybody was like, yeah, he deserved to go to prison. And that's fine. Yeah. I get all that. But like, it was the idea that this was something that was happening along with the other issues of... of punishment and so i get there and i'm showing up with budding hair from getting it bicked and it's blue and i have black eyeliner on i have sharpie black fingers fingernails and uh i i just i was 115 pounds 5'3 and i looked horrible so i walk in and they have this whole entrance program where while the while the rest of the guys are in chapel um they have the superintendent and like two or three staff members and they have you stripped down your underwear to put on PJs. And at the same time, they're looking for anything that maybe you were hiding. They don't like cavity search you or body search you or anything, but they are just making sure. And so they have you change and they had me go and wipe off my eyeliner, realize that it wasn't nail polish. It was Sharpie. So that was going to take time. And <laughs> now I'm walking in and the whole idea is, is they don't want you to have anything from your old life. Because they want you, they want to strip you of the identity that your street credit would give you. And for a lot of students, this was true. You had, I mean, you had some bad motherfuckers walking in there. There was a guy I'm still friends with on Facebook. And he walked in at 15 years old, coming out of CYA in California, the juvenile prison system for, for uh, minors. He walked in there with prison muscles, a shitload of tattoos at like 15 years old. And wearing his colors. And so when he got in there, like there was a lot of hardcore guys there. I was not. So I show up and there's this six foot Ben, who's a little, a little white lily walking in there. (laughs) Yeah. So there's this six foot four Russian who I'm still friends with. He is a beast. And he was also really cool. Um, But you had all of these different walks of life from people that were coming in and out. And you could pretty much start to narrow down 
how people were going to act based on where they had come from. Uh, the gangbangers would put up a huge fuss for the first couple of months they were there. And then once they realized it wasn't doing any good, they would start to do the right, quote unquote, the right thing. And they had a certain integrity about them that you weren't going to take that from them. So like they were who they were. And as, even if you didn't like what they were doing, you knew that if they started doing the right thing, you didn't have to worry about them. They weren't, as we would call it, their snakes. So the guys that always came from church, those were the snakes because they knew how to walk into church and put on a tie, hallelujahs, and really they're, you know, they're snorting blow off their boyfriend's dick after, after church or whatever. So they knew with me walking in there that I may not have done a lot of bad stuff to get sent there, but I got sent there for a reason. And so there's no way in hell that they're going to believe that I'm just going to follow the rules and do what God wants me to do, blah, blah, blah. So the well, other funny knew- thing though, too is you walking into this is such a, it's beyond culture shock because it's, we grew up with such a warped view of the real world and what actually happens. Um, I mean, we got a taste of that before you went to the Academy. Walking into a place like that is just like another like you just experienced the real world and now you're going to this, which is not the real world. This is some bizarre cult like shit. So your brain is just getting fucked with left and right for like years. Well, and the worst part was I walked out of there a lot worse than I walked in. And I'll explain that too, because I walk in having a taste of what I knew my parents had lied about going to an establishment that's now enforcing the same rules with kids that have gone way farther than I ever did. And the, 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 the similarity there is, so this guy you know, may have killed somebody. And that's why he's in CYA and getting transferred to MaxSec after this. But instead, he took a plea bargain to get sent up to the academy. So I run away and I'm here in the exact same spot with the exact same uniform as somebody who killed somebody. Where is the line? So I know that my parents are are lying, but I don't know to what extent. And I'm now in the exact same bad boy position as some of these kids that have genuinely done some horrific stuff. And so I'm like, okay, so am I just as, well, apparently I have a whole lot more I could do to get sent to the same exact place. That's the mindset. And so I'm, I'm meeting these kids and uh, I'll explain a little bit about how this kind of reacted, but I really got to pee like fucking bad. Um, can we like break and then come back in like five, 10 minutes? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I figure we could either do a part two or you could edit out or just leave it on and edit out the space or whatever. Yeah, I'm just recording, so go for it. Okay, all right. Joe and I were choosing what we wanted to do by a very young age. And so everybody is different. You can go through the virtually same experience and have completely different kids do completely different things. There's a lot of kids that we knew that they literally went off the deep end. So it is really interesting to hear it. Um, hold on one second. I need a little sustenance. Um, me too. What? Said me too. So, a bearable kind. I thought of a couple other things that I had heard right before I got in. Before I set the stage on this. On top of the whole rice thing, oh, thank you, baby, um, that the kids had to do before I got there. There was three other 
very prominent things that I heard that they had gone through or some of them had gone through. There was this thing called Dream Team, something else called Red Shirt, and another thing called the Foxy Five. So, God, all those sound awful. Dream Team, um, the kind of school system that we had was called Paces. There were 12 Paces, and you would do uh, three per quarter. And so basically one a month. And when you finished the last pace, there was a, what they call a, uh, a pace test or no, there was one test that you had to get, you had to complete it with a 90 or you had to redo the pace. And then if once you got done with that, that was an open book. And then once you got done with that, you had to take a non-open book test that was 80% or above. So virtually every student's an A or B student. If you got caught cheating, you had to take all of the paces that you had done that year hand erase all of them and redo all of them before you could get off of dream team and what dream team was was standing in the dining room all night every night on half hour shifts erasing and redoing these paces until you completed all of them up to where you were supposed to be so sometimes this would last two three weeks of these kids getting half hour interval sleeps on nothing but basically a blanket and a pillow every night until they got caught. And that was the thing for cheating. Um, red shirt was a whole other thing. Red shirt was these guys that had to wear red shirts with a number on them. That makes and sense. That's a good further, name for that. Further distinguishing them and taking away their identity by now they're a number. It sounds pretty familiar to a few other uh, moments in history. <laughs> and um, they, uh, they have a gold star. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> it's like we didn't learn. So um, just real quick. So the whole academy was started by someone who came from another academy where they were abused and the person got caught for it, correct? Well, kind of, yeah. The the 70s and 80s Luster Roloff homes got shut down. And then right. a, a okay. third party one opened up. And then out of that came a revival of the Luster Roloff home under new management, basically. But the person who is the pastor or whatever he got his license for or whatever, yeah. he was part of that. One of yeah, the homes. Yeah, he was a student. Down, yeah. Right. That's just and a super of your environment. Like he's trying to adapt it. And it wasn't just him, though. It. The assistant pastor no, was I'm also. No, you don't know where I'm going with it. The assistant pastor that ended up coming there about six months after I showed up was also from one of these boys home and had just come back from seminary. So mm, weird. Red well, shirt like, was like, guys that what's that court? It's like, that just like falls in line. They say, I think it's like 97 or like 98% of people who have like been raped tend to be a person that will grow up to rape people. Ah! Like, well, that's like, but just right, like same with abuse. Yeah. To, and that this is the expected norm. How can I make it just right. a little bit better? That I didn't like. Like, this is just the norm because I grew up with it. Like, your child mind means so much into your adult mind. Yeah. Well, that's a common control thing, too. Control, because they didn't have control in that situation. So they try to display control in a different way, but it ends up being the same way. Anyway, keep going. Sorry. No. And psychologically, that's a rule. Abused people abuse people. That's that's like a common phrase in psychology. Abused people abuse people. And they become the exact monster that they try to get away from. Well, this is backed up by a really common thing called concentration brings conformity. 
And there was a story of a guy who he couldn't stand his dad and he'd always ride with him in the truck and his dad had a particular way of sitting in the car. Years later, although he hated his dad, the girl that he's with says, why do you sit like that when you drive? And he's sitting the exact same way as his dad. And so he's like, why the fuck am I doing something from a person that I hate? Well, because even though it was a stupid thing, you concentrated on that in the part of hating him and you started doing it. So like that, that that's this is a known fucking thing. Like it just steamrolls. So red shirt was these guys that had seriously fucked up and done well, seriously fucked up. That's loose term, but they had to wear these shirts with a number on the back of it. These guys would have to do literally like nonstop PT. And there was another punishment, which I'll describe in a little bit that they would also have to perform as well. And it was usually for like a month. So the last one, which is the most fucked up is the Foxy five, the Foxy five were these five guys that I don't remember what it was they were doing. They like got caught masturbating or something like that, which I mean, come on 14 to 18 year olds. There's no pussy. And you are alone in a dorm. You use your socks. I fucking did it. Like I jerk off into my socks and then I throw them in the thing the next morning. I put on my slippers and call it a night. Like who fucking cares? Well, these guys had gotten caught masturbating and the whole thing with the Christian religion that we were raised in is that masturbation is wrong because you're fantasizing about sex. Sex is carnal. And um, you're basically doing the same thing as uh, not adultery. What's it called? Joe, what's it called when you have premarital sex? Um, premarital sex? No, there was a term for it. Anyway, there's a term for it in the Bible. And uh, they basically would say that this was it. And yeah. And uh, these guys were made as a result to wear women's clothing and makeup. How did I know that was going to go gross like that? Dresses and tutus and heels and wigs and makeup. Even though they were straight. It was very. And this was back in a day because this was before I arrived. This was back in a day where making fun of gay people was still very prevalent in social realm. Yeah. It was still not a norm to come out of the closet. And so for them, it was very, very, very humiliating considering they were straight. And that was the social climate to, you know, uh, sexual preference at that point in our history. So that was probably the most fucked up thing that they had done. Well, okay. So now let me set, let me set the scene for the kind of academy that I'm walking into. Everything is based off of communication levels. So when you walk in as a student, it's basically a zero or a three. So there were like five levels of communication. You start out as a three. Now a three can only talk to people in your, uh, can only talk to a number one, who's usually your crew leader or other number ones, which are also usually crew leaders. So about 80% of the dorm, you're not allowed to talk to. But here's the other thing. You are not allowed to acknowledge their presence. So they had they had these things called complaint cards. It's basically like getting written up. And they had a list of 68 codes that if you broke, they had a different denomination, uh, a numerical value that this complaint was worth. <clears throat> so for instance, if it's during a time of silence, meaning that you are not allowed to talk at all, you had to raise your hand, and get it answered by a staff member or a crew leader. If you just blurted something out during a time of silence, boom, complaint, as they would call it. You, you got complaints, which means that they write in the code for what you did wrong and a point system, and it was called a talk out. 
So they would write it up on this complaint card. Well, at the end of the week, they tallied up everybody's complaints. If you were over 20, you didn't get any dessert the following week and you couldn't go to the, um, the like in-room uh, giant projector movie on Friday night. If you got over 30 complaints, you went on something called CET. CET was a modified version of that weekend duty of 10 hours of PT where it was only five hours and it was ran by a different guy. So for the first three and a half months, I was on CET every week. Now, they had one more level. Every other day, starting Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, they had morning PT. Morning PT was an hour long, and that was if you got over 20 complaints in two days. So for the first probably month I was there, I was getting woken up at 4.45 in the morning to do an hour of PT. And then as a result, you know that if you're on morning PT, you already have 20 complaints, so you don't have dessert or the movie the following week. If you are on morning PT at all the rest of that week, you are on CET that weekend as well. So now you've already got two morning PTs and CET, no dessert, no movie. Did you get complaints or were you just new and that was the new thing? I'm just so That's what I was going to say too, is upon entrance, they have a grace period of three days where you can't get any complaints. After that, they're pretty light on you. And then it gets harder and harder and harder. And usually by the end of the second week, you're a full-fledged student. What you do, you're going to get complaints for. Who files so, the complaints also? Just a, as crew, a question. The crew leaders. Oh, okay. Okay. So the crew leaders write up their crew and they... I will say this, there was a lot of good crew leaders there that they would write up themselves, even though nobody was watching if they did something wrong. And so it was somewhat of an honor system, but you're also talking about 16 and 17 year olds in charge of other 14 to 17 year olds. It's not a great system. And then they had staff members that were over that. And you had one guy that was a dorm leader, typically somebody who was on their way to graduating and or had turned 18 and decided to stay. And so they would make him a dorm leader and he was kind of in between being a student and a staff member. So the way that this communication worked is that when you come in, you're basically a number three. And that means you can only talk to your crew leader and other number ones. Number ones could talk to everyone unless one of the students was a number four or a number five. And that was called separation and super separation. These guys had done something so erroneously bad that the only person that they were allowed to talk to was their direct superior. And that was it. One person in the whole dorm. So I walk in as a number three, which means I can only talk to other number ones and my crew leader. The number twos were like an elevated, but not, it was an elevated uh, form of communication without being in a position of authority. So they looked at it as clean communication you were allowed to talk to other number twos and number ones, but you couldn't talk to number threes or below. If you became a number one, you got to talk to everybody. Unless there was a guy on separation or super separation, you couldn't talk to them unless they were on your crew. So they had this whole thing of communication, but it wasn't just talking. If you looked at somebody that you were not allowed to talk to, you got written up as what they call an indirect if you talk to a person that you weren't supposed to talk to, it was called a direct. And a direct gave you less complaints, but you also got SWATs. SWATs was literally getting spanked with a giant ass paddle that had smiley faces on it. And it was called Mr. Smiley. I love the inversion. Just real quick. Like there's so much inversion in this 
academy like the foxy five the red shirts the dream team those all sound really fun really projecting yeah but it sounds great like that would be a camp counselor thing like yeah you're part of the dream team the dream team sounds great the foxy five like the red shirts that it sounds awesome but they took all of that and inverted it and made it terrible and made right. it the thing, like a it, paddle with Wiley torture yeah. fucking mechanisms for children <laughs> taken from the oh, Stalinist Russian era. Like, what the fuck? You have kids on 30 minute schedules standing erect for weeks on end. Are you fucking serious? Right? Don't you want to infiltrate these places? So, my kid's 16. I want to send her there and be like, all right, kiddo, I got your back. You need to report back to me. We're going to get these people. We're going to go in with bombs and fucking kill them. Sorry. Uh, allegedly. Hypothetically. Yeah, allegedly. Yeah. Sorry, my bad. But, We're not uh, inciting violence Fuck here. these people, no, though. They need to die. This is bullshit. Sorry. Anyway. So, no, you're fine. <clears throat> so it was. it ended up being this thing where it was all based on communication and line of sight. And the reason why they would do that is because if you were a snake, meaning that you were manipulative, you were putting up a false front, or you were talking to people that were not on your communication level, they would call it snaking out, where you are talking to people, two people that aren't allowed to talk to each other are talking to each other in private about God knows what. And the way they looked at it is, if you're willing to break the rule, chances are your communication is not clean. And when I say clean, I mean up to Christian kosher standards. You're not allowed to talk about your past life. You're not allowed to talk about how you were raised or any of the bad things you did that was called giving the devil airtime. And so all of, they had all these different rules for communication and, and this, that, and the other. So I walk in <clears throat> black Island or all this stuff. They strip you of your identity. They put you in the same clothes as everybody else. We had to tuck our white nighttime t-shirts in to our pajamas. We had to tuck our shirts hey. in to our pajamas. So <clears throat> They had this whole thing where you would line up for mealtime and it starts, all right, sound off. You start one, two, three, four, all the way back. And if you missed up the count from the person in front of you, you got written up and <laughs> lost your dessert. So it was it like every little thing was very, very, very boot camp style kind of militarization when it came to uh, these protocols. Every little thing. It didn't matter what it was. You were not allowed to place your Bible on the ground. You had to put it on something. You were not allowed to sit or step on the Bible. That was a huge no-no. Um, and so they had like this massive kitchen and everybody had jobs. And if you didn't do your job in the morning in the right time or not well enough, they would fail your job. And that meant that you had to go redo it again. And this was every morning. So everything was regimented out. We woke up at 545. By six o'clock, we're dressed and in line for breakfast. At 6.30, we have 15 minutes to collect our school gear. At 6.45, we're in line for school. At 6.55, we're standing at our desks at the schoolroom. Seven o'clock, school starts. Every little item was mapped out. And the days went fast. As a result of that, you always have this, I got 10 minutes. I got 15 minutes. I have this, that, and the other. Well, Part of the regiment was that when you got done with school at 2.30, you had a half hour to get into work clothes and be on the line, as they would call it. On the line meant that you all met up at the same spot, you got in your crew formation, and you would put your hard hat down in front of you, and you'd have your work gloves and all of this stuff. Again, shirts tucked in, because car hearts look great when they're tucked in. So we would all be standing there ready for work. and. This was the first time where I'm like, okay, 
I look back now and I'm like, it's still hard labor. Even at this age, knowing what I know, it would still be hard labor. Like we had to dig um, telephone lines that instead of going above on poles, they would set them in the ground because they it was a lot more secure. So unlike California, where it's all California clay and hard pan, this was very nice soil. Like you could cut through it like butter. And as a result of that, wheat was like the main thing up there was that they would do wheat fields. So for digging these trenches, we would dig them for two, three hours. And in my time there at the academy, I probably dug anywhere between a half a mile to three quarters of a mile myself. And you're talking a spade widths wide, three feet down. And once you got into what they call a kip, you don't really feel it in your muscles anymore. It's all just rhythm. And, uh, I, I probably did that by myself in about the two years I was there. Now that was just one thing. I don't know who had the bright idea of giving these teenagers a fucking 75 pound jackhammer to jackhammer up these old, uh, driveways load them into wheelbarrows and go dump them off at this spot. But I don't know if you've ever seen a 115 pound 15 year old try to handle a 75 pound jackhammer, but it doesn't go well. I almost took my fucking toes off because I didn't have enough weight to actually be on the jackhammer, but I tried. And uh, this is why child labor laws are in place for yeah. situations just like this. Labor. Yeah. yeah. And uh, not to mention the strain on your ligaments, not to mention the strain on your brain hitting You're your fucking cranium. Period. Not to mention all of the free labor, not Sorry. to mention the long standing like problems that come from this kind of treatment. But, damn. So we did that. We had what they called the, the auto shop where everything was crewed out, as they would say. So one crew would go to one job, another crew would go to another job and this, that and the other. So we had all of these different jobs that we would do. And long story short is we would come in, we'd eat dinner, we'd go to showers. And then every night we had chapel for an hour. So we had a basically a church service every night for an hour. On Wednesdays, it was a formal or more of like a casual dress church service. And on Sundays, we had three church services just on Sunday, all an hour yeah, long. Sinner, sinner like you needs all the scripture he can get. That, sounds, that or, sounds like the worst part. Just kidding. Joe, but. as they would say, if we can't preach the Jesus into you, we'll beat the devil out of you. So they yeah. had all of these. Yeah, different... That's very loving. What a loving God they praise. So long story short, I get there and this is kind of the scene that I'm walking into, right? That's how people end up in basements. But... I agree. I agree. Yeah. That's how people yeah. end up in basement. Jesus told so, me to. Hallelujah. So uh, it was, it was this thing where I walk in there and they all know I'm coming from a church. So they expect me to be a snake, be manipulative, because I know how to live a life, walk into church and act the exact way that the academy would want me to act. Other than the nuanced military rules, they knew that religious wise, speech wise, I knew all the stuff. I knew more Bible there than most of the staff members as a result of this. They almost make you sound evil. Right. Imagine. Fucking Christ. Church learned. Um, so it was this idea that when I walked in there, they knew that I was putting up a false front. I was behaving the exact way they wanted to, but with no actual change. Well, I knew that they knew this. So what I did was I played their game. I behaved acting like I didn't know that they knew I was just putting up a false front. 
So I devised a whole plan and it worked beautifully. Now, this is where we get about six months in and we're having the first graduation ceremony. And that means you have two turnovers in the academy at six months apart, Christmas and graduation. At graduation, all of the graduating class would go home. They were done. They got to go home. So they're now out of the academy. And as a result of that, we would now have another recruitment from 12 to 15 students of fresh blood. Now, this is where seniority starts to come in because now you're earning your stripes by how long you've been there. So about a month before graduation, I start this little inner circle, what they would call a snake pit. And we started planning on busting out. We had this grand plan. Everything was set in motion. And at the last minute, I purposely included a new kid who had something to prove that I knew was going to tell on us. Did you wait? Did you Ooh, uh, I love this story? I did don't you know dig this tunnels yeah. like Tom, Dick and Harry, like from the greatest. No, escape? it was more like the great escape. Yeah, yeah. I'm like with a spoon down there. I'm like, yeah, um, so I include this guy and sure as shit, he spills everything. And of course, I act like I don't know that he's going to spill it all. So every time after graduation, we had what was called, I, we had a name for it. It was an off name. It wasn't like a, an actual, like, um, this was what it was called, but we just called it. It was like the reckoning or the day after or something like this. Long story short, after everybody left on graduation, it was like a new reset of the rules. It was like anybody who had fucked up in the last month of having fun because Prior to graduation, we did a lot of fun things. The last graduating class was going to be graduating. We would go out and do stuff. We'd play basketball. And, and a lot of it was because these guys were like brothers now. You you saw them 24 hours a day. You had a hierarchy authority system where when you join, you're on orientation. Orientation is where you have a guide. A guide is basically like having a crew leader, but it's just you and him. And so you could be a guide in a crew with your student without being a crew leader. So you only had authority over one person. If you were a crew leader, usually had a student or two, and then a crew, including but not limited to a guide and another student. So my guide going in, his name was Curtis Watson. He's the guy that sold me and I bought that relentless sweatshirt that I have. He was the one I was trying to get on the podcast last year, actually. Um, he was awesome, but he was also part of the graduating class of that next year. So he was only there for seven months. Well, you're with these guys on orientation for three months, sometimes four. So you're not allowed out within five feet of them. Well, how do you do that? Well, it means that we didn't have any doors on the on the bathroom stalls. So you had three minutes to take a shit. That's what you got for taking That's a shit. That's not near long enough. How many of these people Trust went me. back home when they graduated and stayed at their fucking house. I'm just I would up love to know minutes. those stats. The people who got out and were like, I'm going straight back to my house. And were who weren't like, fuck this. I'm out forever. Only about 20%. <laughs> wow, weird. Well, only how about many of them came out and went right back to the life they were living, but amplified to an it, a level that was not feasible beforehand because they learned 80%. all the hard shit from the hardcores inside. 80%. Yeah, it sounds and a lot thing. like jail. It's jail. Like you get your, your buddies in jail. It was like an extended boot camp. It was like, it was like boot camp conditions for about two years. It sounds a lot not, like jail. It, which is not supposed to be for that long. <laughs> boot camp is not supposed to be it. that long. 
for a for but a you reason. know at the end of boot camp you're in the military and you've done a good thing. That's right. See, in there's this, an accomplishment. Just in jail. Yeah, there's no accomplishment for this. You're like, no. Am I going to be in my parents' good graces? Am I gonna go to hell? There's no definitive at the end. So in this, it just sounds a lot like fucking jail. A jail well, that you can get out so of when you're 18. It's like the juvie. thing is, is that people are known for when they get clean, like just in normal life, they get clean from something. If they go back to it, they're going back starting at the level that they left off on. And this is why ODs yeah. happen so often is because yeah. you'll work your way up on a drug with tolerance. You quit, you're clean. But then when the next time you try it, you try it at the level you left off on and your body's not yeah. used to it. So you OD. So that kind of concept is what everybody did. 80% of them would go straight back to the life that they were. And the guys I felt bad for were the guys that lived in really, really, really rough families. And they would go to this place and get reformed and be genuine. But then they'd go home back to a shitty family. And within a month, they're doing the exact same thing. So it was kind of like setting themselves up for failure. And they had all... I couldn't I say that again? Because it wasn't them. It was their environment. Right. And they were trying, like they, they would try, they tried to get straight. And there's a lot of guys that like, there's several guys that I know now that they stayed straight. They still believe in God. They go to church and to tell you the truth, even if I disagree with it, they are living much better lives now, the way that they are now than they did or what the path they were on getting sent there. But that's 20%. That's it. And so they had this stupid fucking euphemism that they would use where it's like, yeah, you know, we often get asked about what percentage of the guys get out and continue doing, uh, continue following the Lord. And I always respond, it's not about that. The Lord works 100% of the time. And they had all these dumb fucking like things that what they would the say. Fuck? That is yeah. such bullshit. Such a cop out. It. it sounds like so, marketing. It's just marketing. Oh, absolutely. The team is fan-fucking-tastic. Like, you know, all those gay... Evangelical. Yes, evangelical is a perfect way to yeah. describe that. So, you know, like all of those... Yeah. Uh, those dumb insp inspirational posts and stuff that people yeah. were sent out. It was like that, but all geared towards Jesus. So and um, <clears throat> it was and to keep it was, you there and to keep you thinking that you're in a great place. What we're doing for you is amazing. And that and actually that is probably one of the worst parts is that it got you to accept that kind of treatment. It almost, and here's the thing is that because when you get treated like that and you start looking for the highs, it's an abusive relationship very close to Stockholm syndrome because now you start feeling bad for the people that are in charge because they're having to deal with you. <clears throat> and you start to think that you deserve this treatment and this, that, and the other. Now I never had, I never got to that mental place. Like I, I had been underneath my parents fucking fanaticism for so long that I was like, whatever, like I, none of this is going to affect me now, obviously behaviorally wise it did. It shaped me a lot, but there was an eating. Yeah, you're pretty sucked up. It, there was an eating the meat and spitting out the bones process to this. So I end up including all these guys and this one, this one narc in our little group and he spills the beans. So the day after graduation, we're having the reckoning and all of this information comes out. The next two months were the hardest two months that I spent there. We got in so much trouble that we were on super separation. So there was one person we could talk to. We went back on orientation. So now we had a guide again who was there within five feet of us. Um, we had to write lines. So it's kind of like school lines, except for this was a Bible verse. You had to write them in sets of 250. And if you had a set of 250, you had to turn them in within three days. For 14 days straight, I wrote a set of 250 every day. 
So I was turning in a full set every day instead of every three days. We were not allowed to sit down. You had to stand everywhere you went, including chapel. The only time you got to sit was during an actual church service on Sunday. You were not allowed to sit during mealtime. You were not allowed to sit during school. You had to stand at your desk. And at night, you were not allowed to go to bed at 10 when the rest of the kids did. You stood at the end of your bed with your nose on the end of the bed like this for two hours. And then at midnight, they would let you go to bed. When you went to bed, it was what they called sleeping on wood. They took away your mattress. All you had was a blanket on the top bunk with a pillow. This is for almost two months. Now, there was more. They had this particular kind of punishment that was geared towards bad attitudes and um, basically being sarcastic when you weren't supposed to be sarcastic. It was called nose time. Nose time is where you had to stand with your legs locked and bend down at waist level and put your nose on something without smashing it and without lifting it up at the same time for an increments of five minutes. Now, they had these really cruel things that they would do that they outlawed. One of them was what they called spread eagle. Spread eagle is where you'd go like this with your feet and bend down and tilt your feet up. So you're on your tippy toes. Then they had another thing where so it was for the audio listeners, your legs are spread apart and you're on your tippy toes. Like and you're bending, almost doing the splits, yeah. but not quite doing this. Oh, yeah, I know that one. At a yeah. v. And also, Ben, just real quick, you did this on purpose to yourself. You said that you had devised this whole plan and that you got a person involved who would yeah, add a lot yeah, yeah, yeah. on purpose. Okay, right. I want to so hear. I, I, I knew the storm that was about to come. And so I had this whole thing, but I, I'm going to explain this part of it for a reason is that is that nose time, yeah, you, you spread your legs apart and get on your tippy toes, bend down at waist level and balance your nose on something for five minutes. Well, then they had spread eagle lower than your waist with weights, where on top of bending over, you had shampoo bottles above your back and had to bend down lower than your waist on your tippy toes, spread eagle for five minutes. Here's the thing, you could rack this up indefinitely. So, there were guys there with six and a half hours worth of nose time in five minute increments. Now they outlawed the whole spread eagle and shampoo bottle thing, but you still had to bend down five minutes, bend down five minutes, bend down five minutes until you worked off this nose time. They had other things too that they would do where if you had too many talkouts, one of those complaint systems, every time you got a talkout, you put a rock in a five gallon bucket. There was a guy there that had 36 buckets. And everywhere he went, he had to take them with him. So if he went to school, he had to transport all 36 buckets. When he got done with school, transfer all of them back. If you broke something, you had to carry it. It was called a friend and you had to name it. So That dude if, sounds like a badass. I want to know the dude that had 36 buckets. So, because he was probably like, fuck that shit. Can you imagine just real quick as an adult doing any of this shit to a child? Can no. you imagine any listeners, anyone who's on the show right now, can you imagine actually doing this to a child for the length of time that it was done? A month? Are you fucking serious? That's so fucking gross. So this is where I'm going to have to disagree with Jen about this being like jail. Jail is a fucking vacation compared to this. <laughs> sure. All I'm saying is that when Ben compares it to boot camp, I'm like, Nah, bro. Like at least at the end of boot camp, you have like a value. Boot camp is better than the academy, and the academy is worse than jail. I will take that. Okay. 
So, yeah, so, so, take it from somebody who's been through boot camp. It ain't that bad. <laughs> no, when you first got out, baby, I was like, I was boot camp. You're all a fucking cakewalk. I thought it was going to be way harder. <laughs> no, this Free. is disgusting. It's abuse of children. So it's worse than jail. It's way worse than boot camp. It's like a disgusting <laughs> place that shouldn't exist, should be blown off but, the map. We need to kill these people. Right. Sorry. So this is the thing is that yeah. that would be tough if that was jail now for adults. But this was oh, yeah. that condition for 14 to 17 year olds which is a whole other thing. And they're thousands of miles away from their family. Yeah. They, they have no identity anymore. It's a work camp is exactly It's what a work it camp. And so yeah. what the there was another thing where... Picketing. What's that? There would be people outside picketing. Like there's oh, yeah. people in California Absolutely. that go and picket in support of like Manson. Yeah, so there was this another thing This place should have been called the, uh, the Auschwitz Academy. Yeah. Not the anchor, the Auschwitz. Like, yeah. Very indicative of Birkenau with wooden beds in one pillow where they take your shoes and make you stand like, ah. <laughs> so the, another thing that they did is that if you broke something, you had to carry it. So there was a guy who broke the uh, tank of a toilet. So he had to carry around the oh my tank gosh, for a, a week. child broke something? Holy shit. Give there was another guy, one of, my, one of my friends who I'm still friends with today. <laughs> he broke a garden hoe and he had to name it. So he named it. He named it Nancy, and he'd say, "I have to go grab my hoe," <laughs> and then he'd get in trouble for that because that's the that only was... way you could do it. I know, Worth dude. It. Did Did he get in trouble for having sarcasm when he shouldn't have Absolutely. had sarcasm? Absolutely. Oh, so Gross. there was these things too. Like if you every time you ate, we ate on these like plastic trays, washable, reusable plastic trays, and the way that you do it is you get one napkin, your plate of food, and your utensils. So what you would do is not only did you have to eat all your food, all of it. So if you ask for extra, you better fucking eat it all. But then you had to clean your plate. And so we'd use our fingers because we only had one napkin to wipe up any of the juices or like if it was like um, barbecue sauce or something like that, we would do it with our fingers. Then we take the napkin, dip it in our water and clean out the tray. If it wasn't clean enough, you got a paper plate, which you had to eat all of your food on for a week. So try eating cereal on a paper plate. Well, after so many meals, the plate's compromised. It breaks. Guess what? Now you're eating it on two parts of a plate, including milk with cereal. That's so, a disgusting waste of resources of your brain. Like you're you're constantly worried. You're like, oh my God, like what you're talking about right now, I, I understand. But your brain has allocated space to places it shouldn't go. It shouldn't be wondering if you're going to eat cereal off of two pieces of a plate and what part of your finger you have to wipe stuff up with and saving some water to wipe off your dish. Like that's fucking disgusting. That should never happen. Fight or flight. It's gonna you get worse. Be, so yeah, I, I get gonna, it. But that's never that should never happen. So we get in massive trouble. For two months, I'm not allowed to sit anywhere. I'm on instant morning PT and CET. But in the first two weeks, they were the most awful. The first two weeks, not only were we going to bed at midnight, waking up at 4.45 for morning PT, and then doing CET on the weekends, not allowed to sit anywhere, having to do our schoolwork standing up. We're dog tired all the time. But on top of that, they changed our diet. And that really fucked us up. But the thing was is that it was fully sustainable and actually very healthy. It just sucked. So there was a thing, and I don't remember what the general punishment was for this, um, but they had this thing called eating peanut butter. So 
you know the difference in like salted and unsalted peanut butter? Unsalted peanut butter yeah. tastes like butthole. Okay. She does. So they would take white bread and make two unsalted peanut butter sandwiches. That's lunch. Now, when you were in trouble, you had eight minutes to eat. If you didn't eat it all, they wrapped it up in cellophane, made you two more peanut butter sandwiches. And now you have eight minutes to finish it off. So the problem is, is that when kids couldn't do both of those sandwiches in eight minutes, it starts to build up. And by the time that you get three or four meals in, you have crusty, stale peanut butter bread that you have to eat through first to get to the stuff that's not. That was lunch and dinner, two peanut butter sandwiches per meal. Breakfast was unsalted oats, just plain oats in water, cold. That was your breakfast. So for two weeks, I ate unsalted oats in water with eight minutes. And then in that eight minutes, you also have to clean your bowl. And then for lunch and dinner, I ate two peanut butter sandwiches in eight minutes a piece on top of not sitting down, having 250 lines to write and all this other stuff. Now that's just the in-betweens. The punishment parts of them <laughs> were that oscillating days, Monday through Friday, we would run 15 miles on our lap track until we were allowed to come inside, no matter how late it got. The days in between the lap track days, we would stand outside on the patio in a, in a half moon with our backs turned towards each other, our heads down, looking at the pavement with a broom sweeping back and forth in the same place with preaching tapes blaring out of the stereo for four and a half to five hours. So one day, along with all of this waking up and doing all this stuff, you're running 15 miles. And the next day you're standing in, in place for five hours with preaching tapes, literally sweeping in the same area without moving. Till the whole ground in that spot was just bright white. There wasn't a speck of dust left on this little spot. That was two weeks. Now, this also happened during the summer, right after graduation. During the summers, they literally would do free child labor. They would contract with they would contract with the other farmers to do stuff called roguing and and rock picking. Roguing is well, okay. So first of all, let me explain. So usually, what they do is that they have four fields. These two are being grown, and these two are the off season. The next season, they switch like this. So roguing is a almost fully developed wheat field. You take burlap sacks, you walk about twenty feet apart from each other, and you pick out all of the rye. And you put it in the, in the sacks. We would wake up at 2.30 in the morning. We would be there by 4. And we wouldn't be done until almost 5 o'clock in the evening. So 12 to 13 hours of, of roguing. These, these things were... But they're your guardian. So it's totally fine because you're yep. not employed. And the way that they do it was that... Fun was little that the, roundabout there. The farmers, the farmers would donate as a nonprofit to the academy. So... We're doing this and you're talking hundreds of acres, like hundreds of acres. And we would usually do this four to five times a summer. So every couple of weeks. Another thing they did was rock picking. And that's where you go to the off season fields. And I'm not shitting you crawl through the field, picking up anything golf or anything softball size and larger, putting it in five gallon buckets, taking it to the dump truck for again, eight to 10 hours. So in between all this punishment that I'm getting for devising this plan, we're also doing roguing and rock picking. So 
That goes on for about two weeks. They say no more lines. You've written 250 every day for a week when you're only supposed to turn them in every three days. You, you don't have to do any more lines. I was the first person to get off of lines. Now, what I did and the reason why I did this was because I knew with my background, there would need to be a massive catalyst for a young Christian kid playing the game to become his actual self. And as long as I could sell that to them, then anything I did right after that, they would buy as genuine. And it worked beautifully. So for those next two months while I'm in trouble, I am a asshole to everybody. I'm purposely cussing when I know it's going to get me in trouble because I now the gig is up. They found out that I was playing the game. I got caught. Now I'm just being my real self. The thing the the kid that got me sent there. So now I'm being myself and being a dick. And the funny part was that these guides, I was telling her the other day, there was a kid that got, he, he came to the academy like three days after me and I'm still friends with him. And he was in the car accident I was in, which I'll get to at the end of the story. Um, he broke down in tears and said, I can't have you as a student anymore. I can't handle you. This was the kind of hell I was raising in those two months. And the reason why is I would get people that would try to quote Bible verses to me. And instead off the top of my head, I'd quote them back directly going against what they were talking about. And Watch at one the point out there, <laughs> <laughs> at one point, the kid that got me started on human behavioral psychology, tried to spout out this <clears throat> uh, Bible verse to me. And so I quoted back the reference and it's, you are, ye are as the blind leading the blind down to Hades. And so he would tell me this. And I quoted this Bible verse off the top of my head back to him. And he's like, I don't know that one. I'm like, go and look it up. So he looks it up, shuts his Bible. And he's like, Dude, you could do so much good if you just used what you know for the right reasons. And I'm like, okay. So this is the kind of thing well, that I was doing. with the right opportunity because you're not in right. a place where you're going to do that shit. So they started a thing that year. For the first time, they were all going to travel with like half the group of the, of the dorm to Missoula. Or not Missoula. I'm sorry. Not Missoula. Missouri. Um, and fuck, I, the name of the town name of the town slips in my mind anyway they would go to missouri in the fall and they would work a cotton gin but the guys would get paid the guy each student was getting paid like twenty five hundred dollars by the end of that two months and it was going in a private bank account that they could access when they got out of the academy and it, not only that but it gave them a lot of awesome skills with machinery and how the the process it was cool and a lot of the guys really enjoyed it as a result of me getting in trouble i was not allowed to go fair enough but instead, I used it as a way because I knew the superintendent was leaving. So they had this older or this guy that was a student, was a staff member, and then he left. He was coming back to fill in for the superintendent. And I really liked him. He was an awesome dude. I used that opportunity in the two months they were gone to make strides in the right direction. Granted, not overnight. I didn't do it overnight. I was very purposely throwing in bad behaviors to make it seem like I was struggling, but I was on my way and I did all this stuff. By the time they, the, the superintendent comes back, I'm now no longer on separation, no longer on orientation. I'm now a number two guide. I got promoted in my communication and I now have a student underneath of me. So the superintendent gets back and he's pissed. So pissed. It's been like five months since I got in trouble. And he has no fucking idea why I got made a number two guide. <clears throat> well, I ended up proving myself and he kept me there. And about four months later, he made me a number two crew leader. 
So in about eight months, I had my catalyst. I became who I quote unquote was really. And then I used that as a term, as a way to not do the right thing, but not do the wrong thing. And then from there, I started mixing in the right thing. And then I'd have a bad day and do the wrong thing. And I did this little thing that I did until I finally got up to where they trusted me. So now I'm almost a year and a half in. I just had my very first home visit, which was December of 2005. So I've been there for 14 months. Most guys get to go home at their year. I didn't get to go. I had, or no, sorry. I, I didn't get to go at, at Christmas. So where I'm 14 months in, I still haven't been able to go back home yet. And most kids get to go home for their first visit for 10 days on their year. I've been there over a year, still not allowed to go home. So now we're working our way into 2006. How old were you? Did you have a birthday in between this? Did you turn 15? Did I miss that? Yeah, I had just turned 15 around the time they got home from the cotton ginning. Okay. So <laughs> I, I just I just turned 15. I'm a number two guide. They all get home. The guy doesn't trust me. I prove myself. Now I'm a number two crew leader. And the story continues. Now at this point, things were pretty smooth sailing for me. Literally until I left. There's not much to say. However, I will say that I feel bad about a few things. One, I ran Dream Team. Dream Team. On multiple occasions, I was the asshole behind the desk telling people to get up in every half hour increments, do your schoolwork. We're playing loud music. Um, and I did this probably two or three times as a crew leader. And my thing was is that I knew it was fucked up, but I did it anyway because I had to keep that front up that I was a good kid doing what I was told to do. So I get the fuck out of there because I knew if I didn't, I was not going anywhere until I graduated at 18. So doesn't make it right at all, but that was what I did. Now, I will also say this. There were parts of it that I really latched onto. For instance, every time I lied in the first year I was there, I got caught. And I got trained instead of giving excuses. Hey, did you do this? Yep. Why? Thought I could get away with it. Just blatant honesty. There was no more hiding it. So now I'm about yep. a year in, all these good things are starting to come, quote unquote, good things. And I really started to latch onto that aspect of, I would rather be brutally honest and take what my punishment is than lie about it and make it so much worse. And not to mention not now being trusted. It's one thing to have a lack of character or misbehave. It's another thing to lie about it. So that was one aspect of the Academy that I really not only agreed with, but I latched onto as in my personal life. So we get to about March Let's see, August, uh, May, we get to May. So now I've been in for a year and a half and I'm going home for my first home visit. I get on the plane and I have a layover. Prior to going to the Academy, I had a list of like 20 phone numbers all up here. So the first thing I do is I have a layover and I ask this lady, I'm like, Hey, may I use your cell phone? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm only 15, but I'm on my way home, uh, from boarding school. And I was going to call my brother and let him know that I'm at my layover now just to check in. And she's yeah. like, she's like, okay. So she hands me her phone and I dial Blair's number. Blair answers the phone, not knowing who it is. And I said, Hey Blair, it's Ben. I'm on my way back to Reading. And he goes, Oh, by the way, part of what I did to sell myself, to make them believe it was they checked all incoming and outgoing mail between you and any of the correspondents. And they only allowed correspondence to family members. 
So you were allowed to write like your brothers, like once a month, you were allowed to write, you had to, you had to write your parents at least one page every Sunday. So, but then they also tailored what it was you were allowed to say. You couldn't be open and honest. So what I did was I started quoting Bible verses, telling Blair, I was worried about him. I was praying for him, all this shit in my letters to really sell this idea that I was changing and, and this, that, and the other. So I call Blair and Blair's like, are you going to start preaching at me? And I'm like, no, that's all a ruse. I said, dude, this is all so that I can get out as fast as possible. I said, none of this has fucking changed me one bit. He starts dying. Show, buddy. He starts <laughs> dying laughing on the phone. And he goes, well, you deserve a fucking <laughs> Oscar, my friend. And I was like, all right. I said, so we'll figure out a time for you know me to see you. Now at this point in his life, him and my parents were not talking and they hadn't been talking for about six years. So, <clears throat> cause they weren't talking before the whole Academy and me going over there and staying with Blair. So I do my home visit and Joe was working at red lobster at this point as a server. So we go to see Joe and Joe has let Blair know that we're going to, that we're going to be there. So Blair is working at FedEx at the time. And he just walks in while we're eating. My parents are mortified he doesn't give one look to my parents or Lorianne. He hands me this envelope and says, I can't wait for you to meet my daughter, which was a real kick in the nuts to my parents because they hadn't even met their granddaughter yet. So he hands me this envelope and it's got pictures of my niece that I have not yet met. And so I'm looking at it and it's got notes on the back of it. And he's got a note that says, love you, blah, 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 blah. And so we get in the car and my dad's like, did you know that Blair was coming? And I'm like, what's with the distrust? No, I didn't know. I said, I don't have a phone. He said, it was your idea to go see Joe. I have no idea. And my dad, which I didn't, that was true. And my dad was like, okay, all right. So we get in the car. Really the weirdest late. part is that they were totally cool with bringing you to see me, which I'm apparently the worst. I mean, when it came to that time frame. You're the favorite. So, you're the favorite of your family. So, I will say that. They, As they the did, second wife, I know that you're the favorite. They were, they were mad that Blair was there, but it was fine to go see me. Okay. And I was probably well, high as shit while I was working. This, it's like watching a sci-fi movie. It's like, I'm not going to pick out the details of what's not realistic when I'm watching a sci-fi movie. This whole thing was bullshit. So I'm not going to pick apart the fact that they were mad at you or mad at Blair, but not you. I don't fucking care. It doesn't make any sense. So <clears throat> I end up going back home. Now, Joe and Blair both know it's not working on me. It's all a ruse to get out as soon as I can. Well, at this point, I started very genuinely to the superintendent start saying that I was starting to deal with some very intimate spiritual issues that I needed to work out. And he asked if it was about me going home. And I said, yeah, I'm scared to go home because I might fall back into the same routine. And I really don't want to do that. I'd like, I'd like to step down from being a crew leader and just spend some time not having that responsibility. And so we get on the line the next day and he's like, hey, by the way, um, Ben is no longer a crew leader. Don't worry. He's not in trouble. Um, he has some personal things that he needs to focus on. So this, that, and the other. All right, cool. So now, now I don't have to be in charge of these other fucking asshole shits. Well, we're coming on to that next graduation and that next graduation, um, or I'm sorry. No, no, no. I hadn't, no, no, no. I hadn't gotten uh, demoted yet. So we're coming into the second graduation 
it's a lot of fun. Everybody's having fun, blah, blah, blah. And now I am in the position of looking for these kids that are going to get fucked off on the day of reckoning the day after. And it's my responsibility. Cause again, I had just gotten done running dream team like three times that year. So I'm now in this position and they ended up doing this thing where they had 12 awards and the dorm anonymously, each person voted on who deserved what award. Well, my crew, I had gotten in trouble when I first became a crew leader for correcting people with sarcasm. I actually got in trouble for that. And it's something that I 100% agree with is when I'm correcting someone and I've fallen back, I've obviously not 100% on this, but I feel like when it's time to correct all sarcasm, all comedy goes away. You're genuine, even if you're angry, but you don't belittle them. Okay. So I, I used to do that instead of writing them up, I would just yell at them and make fun of them and be sarcastic with them. And I got in trouble for it. Well, this changed. And by the time we hit graduation now, six months after being a crew leader, they had this uh, voting system. So they were giving out awards and they're all like really religious character traits. Um, well, I ended up getting one from the dorm and it was, <laughs> I have it still. This is the only thing I have from the Academy it's other than maybe some pictures. But, most virtuous. Uh, no, it was most compassionate. Oh, okay. Fair. So I ended up getting that. And the thing was, is that I ended up talking to some of the guys after that. Cause I thought it was a joke. Like I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, okay. Most compassionate. So I end up <clears throat> talking to a few of the students and several of the guys in my crew were like, yeah, we voted for you. They were like, I don't think you understand how well you treat us as far as we're considered from the other crews that we've been on. We really respect you. We really like you. And other kids that were on your crew feel the same way. I said, wow, that's actually really cool. Like I, that, that was never an award. It's like getting uh, uh, most improved when you, you know, you weren't expecting it. So and That's how like could the, you tell the difference between the awards being great? I mean, just like right. what I was talking with the Kim counselor shit, like the Foxy Five, whatever. It sounds like yeah. getting an award would be something terrible. So, ugh. but it, but it wasn't, and and that was, and this was also the first year that they had ever done that. So, I, I demote myself. We get through the summer. It's now been a year since my catalyst becoming myself, slowly changing, getting on their good side. I'm coming up for my next home visit four months after my first one, which was in August. I went home August 9th. I spend 10 days there. We have, you know, as much of a blast as possible acting like I'm this reformed kid with my parents and it's time for me to go back. And I, <laughs> I had adopted this, very spiffy way of dressing myself. I, I always wore a suit if I could, because I enjoyed it daily. You can attest to shortly after we got together, I would wake up with nowhere to go, nowhere to go. And I'd wear a full suit, shave hair done. And then I go down and sit and play video games. And they're like, why are you in a suit? And I'm like, I felt like wearing one. So uh, because you had trauma, you're like, I have to dress like this or else I'm going to have the time I lived with Bailey. No, uh, 
I no, so I know by the time he lived with Bailey, he knew he was going to hell anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, that one I'd accepted it. Yeah, I, I was a driver, like we were hood ornaments on the short bus. We were and I was fine with that at that point. I was more than okay. I'm like, oh my god, having sex is amazing. So yeah. um oh. <laughs> so I'm wearing a suit, I'm on my way home. We land in Great Falls, and we had had these temp staff members that were from a church down in uh, Santa Clarita, California. And they were young, 20, uh, 22 and 24, 25. And they came to help out over the summer. Well, they're going to be leaving in early September when the school year starts. And uh, August 19th, we land in Great Falls, Montana. And I come out and it's these two, two of these new staff members that are driving and passengering. And then my friend that said he couldn't handle me the year earlier that came in like three days after me, he's there just to be there and hang out and talk in the back seat. And which was really cool that they let him do that. It was really cool that they said, you know, he might want somebody in there to keep him company, not just a staff member. Why don't you go along for the ride? You'll get the day off and you can chat with one of your old buddies. who has been there for almost two years like you have. So He's in the, he's behind the passenger seat. I'm behind the driver's seat. We're in what looks, uh, had to have been like a 1998 Chevy Astro van. Now I didn't know this at the time, but the Chevy Astro vans were some of the first vans to have a integrated metal with fiberglass body. And the windshields were, had fiberglass in them as well. And the idea was, is that if the whole windshield cracked, it would at least keep the pieces from falling in. It would spider web and crinkle but it wouldn't shatter. And these frames were the same way because as the metal Im impressed in the vehicle, it wouldn't, it can only go so far as the fiberglass would let it. And so it kind of contained this box from squishing on top of people. So we're on our way back. We've gotten two and a half mile, two and a half hours in. We go through Haver. We're on the last leg. We got 30 minutes. Well, as I said, this is a lot of wheat fields out there. So the roads are long, straight, and it's Montana. They don't give a fuck about speed limits. Yeah, they so know, we're on the not at all. Not at all, especially when you're going towards Canada. So right. Shout out yeah. to our uh, Montana listeners. You guys are gangsters, from what I hear. And, yeah. and you're Canadians, yeah. Depending on how close you are to the border. They're just Southern Canadians. <laughs> so we're about we're we're about five miles now away from the academy we can see the spire of the old radar tower and this old radar base was set at the highest point for hundreds of miles again it was a recon base at the edge of one of our borders for the air force for recon it was all about incoming things during the cold war because they didn't yeah. know if russia would go over alaska down canada and try to come into the united states that way during the cold war in the event of a nuclear attack aids so they uh we're on our way we're about five miles out and where we were at was literally the definition of why they call it the big sky country so if you go to the southeastern and eastern part of the state it's gorgeous it's lush it's green it's really beautiful but the northwestern going towards like uh glacier national park is what they call coolies Coolies are these small rolling hills all over the place for as long as you could see. Where we were at on the radar base, you could see the lights of Canada seven miles away. 
And you could see where the sky met the earth all the way around you, 360 degrees. It was gorgeous. It also got 120 in the summer and negative 50 in the winter. So that was a mind fuck in and of itself. So, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was fun. Um, so, oh, they also had mosquitoes that could sting you through your hat. That's how long their shit was and how robust their shit was. If I was wearing a hat and a bandana, they could fucking draw your blood through your fucking hat. It was they gnarly. Had fucking, they had face boners. Boner. We haven't worked just, in a lot of boners. You totally Sorry, just I came up with that. Yeah, that. I yes. love you so much. But You're welcome. Boner. So, boner. So we're on our way five miles out, and we're going on this long, wide, double car dirt road with no one in sight. <clears throat> well, because it was farmland, you only had one farm every couple of miles. And so you would go miles sometimes without seeing any of them. And because we got off the main highway, we were on this dirt road, which came up the backside to the academy. We go kind of down this slope and on the left-hand side, there's a house and another house and then a couple cars parked out. And you could tell that it was a farmer's house. Right as we get to the dip, I hear the passenger, who's a, a, a gentleman by the name of Jason, tell the driver, who's a 20-year-old female, hey, you're going too fast. I think you should slow down. We hit fresh pea gravel that they had just laid going up this small incline. And as she releases, the van starts to fishtail. And rather than releasing the gas and brake and just kind of letting it slide its way out. And as friction took control and it hooked back up, she started screaming and slamming on the brakes. So at 75 miles an hour, because she's fucking 20, like oh. who the, like who the fuck is letting you drive? It doesn't make any sense. So she, I don't blame her at all. And there's a whole other thing with her years later that I didn't even realize, but we start fishtailing, and by the time that we hit the bank, because the way that it works is like these dirt roads were kind of up on mounds, and you could see it, and then they had like these little things on the wheat fields for all of the excess water to run. And so there were these ditches, and then they would plateau into the wheat field. So we're kind of right. going up this hill. Huh? I said, right, it's called a, a, called a fill. Yeah. It's an so mound up. Yeah. Yeah, and the roads, not they weren't bowed, but they were up kind of at a slant. You had the fill, and then you had the wheat fields on the other side of it. So it kind of looked like this. Mm. Sorry, baby. And um, we start fishtailing when she starts screaming and, and slamming on the brakes at 75 miles an hour. By the time that we hit the bank, we've gotten down to 60. So she's fishtailing like this, and it goes off into the fill and hits the right front corner of the van at 60 miles an hour. I was not wearing my seatbelt. So everybody else has their seatbelt on. So this is, and the crazy part is I remember all of this shit. This is, and I, I relayed this story multiple times while in shock afterwards. And they said that they determined that my exact story was exactly what happened. And I, at this point I have, I'm concussed, I'm in shock. And so after I snapped out of it, it was kind of dreamy. But I asked them if what I had said about how it, how it went down was correct. And they were like, yeah, you were actually spot on because the passenger received no injuries. And he said that that's exactly what happened as well. So 
We hit the bank on the right nose. The van goes into a roll, like ferocious in the air. One of those, it's flipping in the air like this before it hits the first time and then keeps tumbling. So it rolled a total of four times. Well, the Chevy Astro van, I don't know if you know those, remember those vans where you had the two pop-out windows that latched. And so it would separate off the van like this. And you would just lift up the two locked latches. It would slide out and then you'd lock them back in place. So my, my window's open like this. I don't have a seatbelt on and I'm right behind the driver's seat. We start rolling this way on my right side. So for those of you who are listening, I'm on the left side of the vehicle. We hit the right front nose. It starts rolling to the right. Yay, centrifugal force. So on the first roll over the van, the window shatters on my side. As it rolls the second time over, the centrifugal force of the window after it got shattered being rolled into the air was enough that I got sucked out of it like a vacuum, including but not limited to ripping out the oh shit handle. So I was holding onto the oh shit handle like this, trying to brace myself, and the centrifugal force snatched my ass through the window with my feet and my head still inside and threw me into public. No, uh, threw me into the wheat field. So the last thing that I remember is holding the oh shit handle, flying them through the air at probably a solid like 20 feet and seeing the van rolling underneath of me as I fly away. And <laughs> saying, oh, shit. oh, that's kind of pretty. Saying, fuck, 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 fuck. So, uh, fuck, 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 fuck. I, I did you tell on yourself? Did you write yourself up for saying "oh shit" or "fuck"? Yeah. Did you write? Yeah, yourself I don't up? think anybody would have gotten pissed in that certain situation. They would have been like, "No, oh, it's all right." Really? Cool. No. I guess it's circumstantial. Fair enough. I mean, it was kind of it, you know, it was kind of serious. I think that's the only so, kind of like kindness that I've gotten out of that place. Because I guess in that, the fact that you have to say, "I guess that they would excuse that," right? Instead of yeah. like, oh, "Of course." <laughs> Well, I guess you were in kind of like a near-death situation. Like, I guess you can say shit or fuck. Fuck those people. They need to die. Yeah. The fact that it's, I guess, or like, even the fact that you have to think of that as a question, like, would you write yourself, like, the the idea that that's a joke, would you write yourself for that? That's how ingrained it becomes. Right, right. The fact that it was even like a contemplation as to whether or not it would be okay is... That says enough. So I black out midair. That's the last thing yeah. I remember. And it, it only took about three seconds off of my time lapse from what I remember before impact. But then it took about five to 10 minutes after impact that I don't remember. So As the van you fucking lawn dart into the Montana. Summer. Oh yeah, man. Like lawn darted hard. And the thing Jesus. was is that I'll tell you, I'll tell you what they deduced after the fact. But long story short, I black out for about five to 10 minutes. And that's a long five to 10 minutes for the other yeah. people. Because yeah. when you're in a situation like that. It's a lot as well. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> um, is that. The entire two years explain a lot. Yeah, this entire two years does explain a lot. So oh, yeah. uh, for those of you that have listened for the past two years, here you go. Um, so <laughs> I, I go flying out of the vehicle. I black out midair. So apparently what, what had happened was the van rolled about four times and rested on the passenger side. Now, the female driver, when it hit the bank, slammed her head into her window, shattering the window 
and gashing her head so hard she had to have almost 26 stitches. She was so concussed, she didn't remember leaving Great Falls three hours earlier. And she had brain problems, as far as I know, to this day. So it sounds I'll, like she had brain problems way before that. Oh, she did, man. She looked like something straight out of Little House in the Prairie. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna the, beat the Jesus into these kids. <laughs> woo! So the passenger, the 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 male staff member, he saw it coming because he was the one that asked her to slow down. So we hit the bank, and as it rolls, he plants his feet on the floorboard. He sits back in his seat. He grabs this handle. And he grabs underneath of his chair and he just stays. He didn't get a scratch on him, but it lands on his passenger side and she is bleeding all over him. Now the kid, my friend, he was fine because all of them had their seatbelt on, but he's wearing cowboy boots. He's from North Carolina. When it hit and started rolling, the passenger seat buckled and the metal frame went straight into the top of his foot, like where all the bone is at and Ooh. embedded like a V his cowboy boots into the top of his, the bone of his foot. <laughs> it is wedged in there. So they land, <laughs> land, they land, they come to rest. And at this point, the guy in the passenger seat's like, okay, we need to get help. I'm gone. Like this all happens within a matter of what, nine seconds. And so he's like, Ben's gone. Taz is bleeding all over me. That's the female driver. And Cody in the backseat is basically screaming bloody murder because of his foot. Cody unwedges his foot from where the metal went into his foot. The boot is still in his foot and he undoes his boot and he crawls out of the window and starts crawling towards the farmhouse. Jason gets out of the vehicle and he's looking around. I am nowhere to be seen. He has no fucking idea because, little unknown to him, I am way the fuck out in a tall wheat field just a laying there. So he gets out and he's like, Cody, what are you doing? And Cody's like, I'm fine. My foot's just hurt. I'm trying to go to the ranch hand's house or the, the farmhouse to get some help. And he says, okay, I'm going to try to get Taz out and that was more of a difficulty because it landed on its passenger side and she's suspended in the driver's side now and she's bleeding she's knocked out the whole bit and he doesn't know how bad she is so he's trying to open the door he and then he's trying to take out the windshield and he's trying to get her out as gently as possible and here I come up like a zombie just out of nowhere walking towards the vehicle I don't remember any of this but Apparently, I was grabbing my side saying, ow, it hurts. I can't breathe. I wasn't hysterical. I wasn't crying. I just walked up and said, I can't breathe. And Jason's you had two like, years of trauma to help you with that. You're like, it's okay. I don't have any emotion about this because I don't want to go to hell. Yeah, we actually had a, uh, we, we got a soundbite of Ben walking, holding his side. And put him, uh, put, put... Uh, just kidding. That's Joe Biden. Go ahead. Continue. Sorry. <laughs> so... Um, I like how Courtney laughed in the background of that. That was funny. Um, <laughs> so I walk up to the vehicle and I ask Jason if he needs help. And he's like, where have you been? And I'm like, well, I was, I was like out in the we field. Like, now, Narnia, dude. Like <laughs> I walked back through the wardrobe. Like 
I, I was trying to doing... die out there, son. And what do you like, mean, where we're going? run away and break for the Canadian border. <laughs> I know. And if I had the lung power at that point, I fucking would have. So instead, I instead I help him get Taz out of the vehicle. So I help I help get Taz out of the vehicle. We lay her down on the side of the road, and he, and I'm I'm sitting there saying, "Man, I can't breathe." He says, "You need to lay down. Lay down. We're gonna get help." At this point, Cody has gone from across the road, down the dirt road, it wasn't very far, and up to this house. He's yeah, knocking on the door, yeah, nobody's in. Dude, this kid is a monster, and the funny part is he has fuck the voice yeah, of like a of like a four-year-old girl. Like, he sounds like Ariel, still. And uh, <clears throat> so he's knocking on this door, and the door's not answering, and he's getting frustrated. He Now he's in pain. Now it's been five minutes, and the adrenaline's starting to wear off, and now he's really feeling yeah. it. So he's knocking on the door. Jason runs up, covered in blood, knocking on this door, knocking on this door. Nobody answers. Well, I noticed that the house across the street has a light on, or not across the street, but across this dirt parking lot has a light on, all part of the same farmland. He goes running over there. He knocks on the door. This guy answers the door, sees Jason covered in blood, almost pukes, and says, I got to get my wife. He, this like rugged ass fucking Montanan farmer. And he's like, nope, can't do that. So he goes and he gets his <laughs> wife. And his wife, up, his wife walks up, sees him covered in blood. There's a massive, you know, still settling dust cloud. There's luggage strewn down the road. And he sees, and Cody's over there in now virtually a fetal position trying to, you know, not go into shock. And uh, she's like, oh my God, what happened? He's like, we need you to call for an ambulance. We need to load these people in your trucks and meet the ambulance halfway. So the, the guy gets on the phone, calls an ambulance. There's been a wreck. It's on this road. We're going to load them into trucks. We'll meet you guys halfway. So the next thing, when I come to consciously is I'm on the side of the road going, oh, I can't breathe. And I'm trying to breathe and it hurts. And so then I get up and they're like, we need to get you in the back of this four by four. So it's a, you know, a big old dually four door Dodge Ram. So I lay down in the back seat. Jason or no, Cody. Cody gets in the front seat because both of us are conscious. So Jason gets in the other truck with Taz, who's still unconscious and bleeding. And so at this point, they've wrapped something around her head to try to stop the bleeding. And he's sitting in the passenger seat of this truck with Taz and the female ranch hand. I'm in the other truck in the back seat with Cody in the passenger seat and uh, the guy ranch hand. So now we're booking it. We're booking it down. And I'm in the back seat, and I go like this, and my hands and arms are covered in blood. And I go, is this mine? And the guy looks back and goes, no, buddy, that's not yours. That's Taz. You helped her get out, you helped get her out of the car. And I went, oh, okay. And I put my hands back down on my stomach, and I'm like, it's really hard to breathe. And they're like, yeah, we know. We're on our way to meet the ambulance right now. Get in the ambulance. And this is where I was so pissed. I get to the, the hospital and have her. They scissor off my nice suit because they don't know where the injuries are at. I was so upset in that moment in shock that they were scissoring off my suit. And then as if he had had like, I'm going to go to hell. What the fuck? Sorry. Yeah. And then as if he had, and now I'm completely splayed with my stack of quarters and a nickel on top. And as if he had his hand in the freezer says, I'm sorry, but I have to check for internal bleeding and puts his cold ass finger in my butt to check for anal bleeding. 
Is that the? Yeah, uh, you're like, I didn't even have to do that in the academy. What the fuck is wrong? Yeah, with I was like, you? dude, I didn't even get pee pee in the poo poo up there, and there you are, just cold handing it right up my poop shoot. Is like, that the, the typical way to check for? Hold on, I'm letting this part well, they, they were checking all kinds of things. They were checking for bruising, any kind of lacerations. They were checking. No, I'm, it, I'm saying th this guy was gay. <laughs> Faggot. No, they they had to check everybody that was either knocked unconscious, showing signs of concussion, shock, and had I mean, serious injuries. Yeah, because if you have like if if like you break enough ribs and it perforates something, yeah, there's internal bleeding. There can be sure. internal bleeding and hemorrhaging, which is what they were worried about. So they've deduced at this point that they don't have the proper equipment to really find out what's wrong. They need a full chest MRI. And this is a small 10,000 population town. Their hospital's not equipped for that. So <clears throat> Taz is laying next to me on another table with a curtain between us, you know, because we're naked getting our chili rings fingered. So she's on the table next to me and they start to cut off her clothes and she wakes up not remembering three like, hours, yay, not, yay. Knowing, not knowing who she is, not knowing why she's bleeding, and she has no idea why people are cutting her clothes off. She starts freaking the fuck out. Yeah. She thinks she's getting raped. She doesn't know where she's at. And although I didn't know if she would remember me, I said, Taz, it's Ben. They're doctors. They're, they're just doing their jobs. They're trying to find out if you're bleeding inside. Please let them do their jobs. They have to know. She quiets down to a whimper and says, okay. And then they fingered her chili ring. So um, after that, they decide, well, we can't we can't deal with this because we don't know what we're dealing with. So then they try to do the optimistic. Have you ever been on a helicopter ride? You get to go on one tonight. And they're just trying to keep me awake. They don't want me to slip into a coma. They don't know how bad my my shit is. And so they're, you know, trying to be, you know, oh, it's you're fine, buddy. You're fine. They get me on the helicopter, and at this point, I start coughing up large amounts of bile and blood, and I don't know what it's from. So I'm just like, I'm going over like this in, in the helicopter, just like spitting out all of this like bile and blood, and they're wiping me up. We get to the hospital, and they did an MRI. My head was fine, ironically. And yeah, uh, yeah okay. And uh, they do a chest x-ray, and they found out I had cracked every rib on my side um my spleen was mashed and bleeding my lung was bruised collapsed and my chest cavity was filling with fluid yeah and like they was... definitely knew that before you got there they were like oh hey buddy you're about to die like right yeah i found that out later that <laughs> yeah for sure so we get to great falls and they immediately start me on a morphine drip system you were seconds so... away from chest decompression needle but yeah yeah and i didn't know that like like turkey yeah. baster <laughs> like yeah yeah so Pop. they do this they do this this surgery it's not really a surgery but it's what they call a live mri and so they put you under the mri machine and they put this little tiny guide wire down the back side because of where the ribs open up down the back side and then they open up the hole a little farther and they put almost a one centimeter tube and follow the guide wire down and then pull the guide wire out. Now you have a tube in your chest cavity and yep. immediately all of this yellow, white and red fluid starts oh. getting pumped into this machine. 
So now they've taped me up. They got the machine and I am high as a giraffe's hot pussy. I was so fucking high. And they put me in the ICU. <clears throat> now, at this point, one of the guys from the academy that was not involved in the accident, great old Southern guy with a long Southern drawl, he comes down there and he is sitting with me. And he's telling me, hey, your parents are on their way. They got tickets. They're they're flying up Fuck to Great Falls. Them. They put me here. So That's I'm sitting there and I'm like, I no, this is the funny thing. As concussed and high as I was, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm getting out. I'm getting out because of this, because they're going to oh feel so God, fucking like, guilty that they will take me home. They will not allow this to happen again. And well, so you're I'm getting like, out and you're getting paid. Yeah. I'm sitting there and I'm like, I've got my golden ticket and I'm fucked. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden the phone rings next to my bed and the staff member answers it and he says, Hey, it's your older brother. And he hands me the phone and it's Blair and Blair is sobbing. He is sobbing in tears saying, I can't believe they sent you away. I never get to fucking see you. All I hear is that you're in a massive car accident. You're in critical condition in the ICU. I could fucking kill him. And I, I'm high as fuck. So I said verbatim, Blair, don't cry. If you cry, I'm going to cry. And that hurts way too much right now. I am in a lot of pain. And he's like, it's fucked up. Like, he is pissed. Well, I didn't find out later. Like, he was three sheets to the wind, ironically. Um, but I hang up the phone with him. And over the next several days, they had shoved a tube down my penis into my urethra for a catheter. And three days later, the morphine started to... My, my system started to reject the morphine. Like, you have to understand, I was on two milliliters of morphine every 15 minutes. So at like 10 minutes, I look at the clock and I'm like... And nothing's happening. It hit like 16 minutes. I push the button and you hear this beep. And all of a sudden the warmth would spread throughout my body. And I'm like, ah, ah. And so I'm loving it. Well, then they put me on one milliliter every eight minutes. So rather than two every 16 for a larger high spaced apart, it was more of a solid feed. One milliliter every eight minutes. So I'm on morphine for three days in ICU. And when they finally decide that I'm okay. The fluid has drained enough to take the pressure out of my chest. My spleen had stopped bleeding, which was a huge deal because had my spleen not have stopped bleeding, they would have taken it out and I would have been on vaccinations and medications the rest of my life. And they yeah, tell yeah. me this up. So my spleen stops bleeding. And as a result, it's scar tissued. When it's scar tissues, it acts like an armadillo. It is now more secure than it was before the car accident. Now, this is where things get a little bit. Yeah. This is where things get a little funnier. So now we're, I'm in pediatrics. Oh, it's already hilarious. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm in a lot of pain. And they've down from morphine to Vicodin. And when they pulled the catheter out, it was just, they say, we're going to pull it out on the count of three. Okay, take a deep one, breath. Two. One, two, and on two, they take it out. And it was like a six foot long snake just coming out of my dick. And I remember audibly, my I audibly, the air got removed out of my chest. And I went, <laughs> as they're taking it out. Yep. And so now, now I have to pee on my own. And I haven't peed on my own in three days. Oh my God. When you're not peeing normally, your shit loses lube. The first time I went and pissed after getting that catheter, it was like pissing razor blades, dude. It was awful. And I would get dizzy super fast. I'm on a liquid diet. I'm on an IV, all this shit. You get to pediatrics. 
and I can't keep food down and it's getting worse. And so I, I tell the doctor, I said, the only way I can describe it is that I feel like my stomach tube is, is pinched. So they're going to go scope me out. And so they put me on laughing gas, but it wasn't good enough. So they upped it until I was unconscious because I was in so much pain. I couldn't handle standing there in this little like container thing that they had to scope me. So they put the scope down. They realize as a result, everybody carries stress differently. My body created ulcers. So now my upper intestine has three ulcers and that was the pinch quote unquote that I was feeling and why I kept throwing up food. So they put me on this medication with 24 hours of meat and a fucking cheeseburger and drinking a Coke. And I loved it. Well, unfortunately, because of all of the medication, I was getting stopped up. So what they do, they counteract it with laxatives. So now after five days, I take a shit that rivaled my fucking fist in a brick coming out, made my ass bleed. And when I got done, I felt a lot better, but I still knew that I was going to end up building it back up and probably have another horrible brick poopy. So like that. So at this point I start feeling a lot better and they decide to release me. We go back to the Academy to collect all my belongings and we're there to recover for another week before I try to travel. And everybody is like, they give me a standing ovation, blah, blah, blah. Taz still doesn't remember anything about the car accident or the three hours. Her head is constantly hurting. And uh, when I get back home, uh, Joe was nice enough to come bring me the, the Nintendo 64. And I was not, I was on light duty. I couldn't lift over like 35 pounds. And I had lost 20 pounds of muscle. My my BMI at that point was under 5%. I weighed 135 Yo, pounds. You said you were 115 when you got in there. So what's yeah. the reason? You were on light duty as in you were still having to do things? No, it just meant like I, okay. I was allowed to get up and go to the bathroom, go sit at the okay. table and eat. I couldn't okay. lift anything other than like maybe my clothes. Okay, bend that down. word just translated differently. From yeah. My brain, sorry. And like what they did was they said, um, you know, you're going to be on these non-anti-inflammatory hydrocodones because this is why I can't take ibuprofen is because my body, when it gets stressed, it, it creates ulcers. Anti-inflammatories egg that on. And so I have to take things like Tylenol, which are non-anti-inflammatory, acetaminophen, no aspirin, ibuprofen, things like that. So it's at this point, Joe brings me the Nintendo 64. So I'm just sitting there playing video games all day and loving the three months of drugs and not having to do shit. And what I ended up realizing is after about a month, I'm about to turn 16. And after about a month, I get a horrible fever, almost 106, but I don't feel anything. It's probably COVID. I, I don't feel loopy. I don't feel anything. And so my, my mom was like, all right, we need to take you to the doctor because this is your brain's going to boil, whether you are feeling it or not. We take me in. And as a result, my lung had recollapsed, my chest cavity refilled with fluid, and I now had external pneumonia. So I go into the doctor and this is at Mercy now in Reading. They redo the whole thing, the whole thing all over again, tube in the back. And right before we go in there to do this surgery, I'm looking at the male nurse who's like jacked up with tattoos. And I'm like, so last time I did this, they gave me morphine. He goes, he goes, he goes, yeah, we'll give you a fix. Well, I've been not on any pain meds other than like light pain meds for almost two months. Oh my God. I get why morphine is so good because I'm sober now, 
And the only way I can describe it was that it was like fingers crawling <coughs> up my arm. And when it hit my heart, it was like my whole heart went <clears throat> boom, boom and slowed down. But mentally, I'm still all there. So now I'm feeling this, what feels like a heart palpitation. And from there, you can feel it spread everywhere. And it was like fingers crawling up my brain. And once it got to the top, it was like a light bulb turned on. And I was like, ding. <laughs> yep. So now we go in for the surgery. I'm feeling great. I'm joking with the doctors of this, that, and the other. They get everything taken out. And my main doctor says, your lung is recollapsed. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. You need to open it yourself or we will be putting a tube into your lung and forcing air into it to open it up because the inside of your lung is made of tiny air pockets. And as those start to basically close like a wet, like a wet uh, shopping bag, it sticks to each other. How do you and open so it yourself? Breathing as deep as possible. And the crazy part is you can feel those air sacs popping open and it is painful as fuck. You hear this little as you feel it wrenching itself open from this wet paper bag analogy. So I start doing this. I start, you know, those little machines and shit like a kazoo that you got to breathe into. I get it all done. The uh, uh, what's it called? The uh, antibiotics. Sorry. The antibiotics are taking effects for, for the ammonia. My fever goes down. I throw up again. They put me back on the stomach medication. Everything gets worked out. I go back home. Still on light duty for another month. And like three months after I get off light duty, I'm about to start track and field for the local homeschool group. And I break my arm so snowboarding. Are you out of the academy at this point? At are this point, out? I'm out okay. of the academy, free and clear, like five months. Okay. And at this point, I break my wrist. And we calculated that in six months, I cost about $100,000 in damages. So <laughs> that was funny. Um, but so the sad part about the Academy, and this is what I'll kind of like close this up on, is that I've had so many friends of mine from there die within the first couple months or years that they were out. One of the guys, yeah. uh, his name was James Gray. He was this kid from Stockton. He got out after he graduated. And within about two months, he tried to rob a convenience store and didn't know that there were two cops taking their lunch across the street. The cops get the call for a robbery in progress. They see it's right across the street. They show up. They say they have sawed off shotguns. I watched the YouTube video and I see James Gray fully masked with his sawed off shotgun getting the money out. He walks out of the store. They're drawn for a felony stop. They say, put down the weapon and he fires the shotgun at him. And they took him down in a hail hailstorm. So now he's dead. He's 19. In 2000, in 2000, uh, early 2019, um, you know, 13 years later, I am Googling some of these guys that I knew that I couldn't see on Facebook or couldn't find on Facebook. Well, when I was at the Academy, I was in a quartet. It was an acapella quartet. We all made our own parts. We even recorded some CDs, which I actually have in the door of my car. They need to get Beautiful. taken out of there. Um, I don't listen to them, but they're just kind of there. Like, I don't know why I left them there, but um, probably because of the trauma. But okay. it's right next to my crystal egg. So uh, it's uh, I, I'm looking up these four guys and I, I find out that the son of a pastor who was in the quartet and in the academy with me and graduated out of the academy had died a year and a half earlier. Right before his 30th birthday, he had gotten clean from heroin. He had led the worship service in his church the week before, and they found him dead the following Sunday when he didn't show up 
of a heroin overdose and he was 29. Wow. As I'm finding this out, I tell one of the guys that I'm in contact with still, Hey, did you hear about Josiah? And, and they were like, no. And so I tell them and they said, did you hear about Devin? Devin was another one of the guys in the quartet. He got shot and killed three weeks before I found this out about Josiah. He was a tattoo artist and a drug dealer in Detroit. And he had had a bad deal go down and they went into his house with his kids there and shot him dead. Oh. So I end up hearing all of these stories of these guys that they didn't just go back. They went back exactly like Bailey said. They went back way harder, way harder yeah. than they ever had. And I ended up reaching out to the last surviving guy out of the group. And I think that's probably why I have the CDs because it's a picture of all four of us. And out of those four, there's only two of us left and we're young. And so I reached out to the last surviving member. Okay, you go the opposite. There we go. More. Oh, oh thank you. Um, I reached out to the last surviving member and I'm like, hey, man, have you heard? And he's like, no, I haven't been on Facebook for like 10 years. And so I told him about Josiah and Devin. He's like, holy shit. And I'm like, yeah, man. I said, don't do anything stupid. Take care of yourself. And he's like, yeah, you too. He's like, we should, you know, we should link up. And uh, I've talked to come out of there and be successful. Just yeah. like side question. Okay. And there were a lot of guys that they, they stayed straight the whole time. They didn't really buy into what was going on at the Academy. And when they got out, they didn't buy into the other side of it either. They okay. honestly got sent there for doing regular kid shit that their parents didn't like. They said no to the Academy and they said no to a, a shitty life. And they're just normal people. And so you do have quite a few of those. Um, Curtis, the guy who I got the sweatshirt from, he's actually a local uh, movie star. He's been in several uh, like shows, one of which was featured on, I think, um, like YouTube originals or something like that. And so I talk to him probably the most frequently. And by that, I mean, like every couple of months, I'll have a comment from him or or something like that. But uh, yeah, it, it it's funny looking back now because in the moment, it wasn't, it was only hard for like the first couple of months. Even when I got myself in trouble, I had this mindset of, I purposely did this. So just take it in stride because this is now your catalyst to get out. And so that's how I looked that's at your it. Your perspective though, that's your perspective and that's Absolutely. amazing. But it was only hard for the first couple of months, but people who get sent there, it sounds like they could basically do nothing and they're just abused for years and years depending on their age and their personality. That's it's so gross. You are a I mean, you're not a you're not weak. So you were like, okay, I'm going to adapt to this shit. I'm going to figure this out. You already had a little idea of that because you you and joe had already done some stuff that was to oppose your parents and like oh we're gonna sneak this we're gonna do this we're gonna you know run away or do whatever but some kids might have like you said earlier way earlier because it's now coming up on three hours but way earlier you said some kids who didn't take out the trash or clean the yeah. dishes well enough and they get sent there can you imagine from a perspective of a kid who doesn't fucking know what's going on raised in the exact same way that you guys were very religious. And they're like, Whoa, mom, like I'm not even drinking or doing well, anything. And what it did was it set me on a path for the next 12 years of trying to find my own line. And I didn't. And that's the thing is that it wasn't until enough separation had happened of me 
always saying, fuck the system, do what you want to do. Don't change. I don't change easy. I never have. And that that's what carried me through the academy. But it also, when you have a bad habit, it means you don't get rid of it very fast. And so for the next 12 years, it was blunder after blunder after blunder, blindly going through life. I left my parents' house at 13. I left my parents' house at 16. I added up the amount of time I stayed at my parents' house and it was about 14 years and like nine months. But do you see why that is? Like anybody in your situation should have only stayed there for that exact amount of time. Any (laughs) qualities that you gained from the academy are bullshit. Like you already had those. It brought it out in you because you needed to just, you needed to do it. You were like, okay, you already had those qualities. The Academy gave you fucking nothing. It brought it out in you because you fucking needed it out of necessity. Well, okay. So there is, you know, the whole trial by trial by tribulation and and this type of stuff, right? Okay. So yeah, I, I do think that those qualities were in there somewhere. But the thing is, is that had I not have gotten sent to the Academy, those may have never resurrected and I would have been a manipulative piece of shit for the rest of my life. I don't know that. That's not what happened. But what I do know is that what is the point of looking back and saying the Academy gave me nothing when it literally did mold me into some very positive aspects? If it weren't for the Academy, I would not have the physical work ethic that I have now. Were it not for yes, the Academy, you would. You already had it. You already had it. It was there in you. Really. No, 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 Bailey. I want to hear Bailey's opinion on this because I think he agrees with me. It was already there in you, right? Like, don't you think Ben was already like this and it just was pulled out of him? I think we should do a definite Q&A session uh, separately, like a part two. But like Anne Frank got real quiet and good at hiding, bro. Just because you were in a traumatic situation and you can garner some kind of catharsis out of it that is beneficial to your life now doesn't mean that those people shouldn't be drawn and fucking quartered. Like, oh, I agree. That's what coping is. Kind of making- treatment, and that's, that's a coping mechanism. What happened to you and why you took control of it is it was a manifestation of what you saw in your life being perpetrated by your parents. They had to control everything so much that you were like, fuck it, it's going to happen bad anyway. Let's go. It's yeah. the same and, thing I did with my cycle of dating. We talked about that on private, but it, it's well, there, like okay. it's so there's a that po- you have a positive aspect of it and you've you garnered positivity out of it and you've dealt with it. But the understanding that that's still trauma response is, is really important. Okay, so there's there's been a lot of speculation from multiple people in my life that it was traumatic and I didn't get over it. And in my opinion... I dealt with that head on in the first couple of years after getting out and I did it through exactly what you're talking about. I went off the deep end again. I was 16, 17, drinking, smoking pot, smoking like a chimney, uh, working 43 hours in, in four days so that, or two or three days so that I could have a four day weekend living on my own with a roommate. And like, While there was a lot of things about going to school. Oh, while going to school. I, I mean, he was awful. Just <laughs> fucking putrid member of society. But it's one of those things where I look back at it and people are like, you have to still have some kind of trauma brain or tick from there. And I always ask, why do I have to? Are you saying that you can't be healed from trauma? And my other thing is this, is I'm not saying there aren't going to be effects from it. That is exactly what I am saying. 
but are the effects positive? Because you can turn something traumatic. For instance, I don't have any PTSD from it at all. There's been a shitload of stuff that have happened in my life, whether it be driving or uh, like from the car accident. I had a little bit for the first like six months after I got out of the car accident as I would, I would get really edgy um, and stuff, but like that's gone now. Um, I don't have what do you talk about. Sorry, but with, I'm not trying to cut you off or be a dick. But the way you talk about the Academy is like you going into the Marine Corps, like you're like in love with it. It's a place you got sent to, not a place you chose to go. And you look at it like a place where you learned and grew, which is true. But you look at it, you put it up on this pedestal that it shouldn't fucking be on. It should be down in the worst place where you should fucking destroy it. And you look at it like it was great. And it wasn't. I understand it maybe brought out some good things in you, but you already had those things in you, in well, my opinion. Let me pose you a question on that. Why put the energy in one direction instead of the other? Why would I put energy into destroying it in my mind instead of, and here's the thing. I don't agree. I don't agree that I put it on a pedestal. I put it on, I put, I, I look at it as an event in my life that was unlike anything else that anybody would have gone through. And that's why it's unique, but I don't put it on a pedestal at all that I enjoyed it. However, I am comfortable talking about it because I have healed from it. I faced it. Yeah. And I had to face it for several years after that. And I accepted the things that it did change about me, negative and positive. But to say that I should put it down in the dirt and destroy it is a negative energy that I do not feel would be constructive at all. You forget about it. I, you shouldn't. All right. Maybe you shouldn't feel negatively about it, but you should just go poof and already know that everything that you gained from it or whatever was already in you and forget about that fucking place. And never talk about it again. It doesn't deserve to be spoken about. Yeah, I think sometimes, at least from my perspective and the time of being around those conversations, when you talk about it, I, I not like holding to this word, but sometimes it almost seems like it's romanticized a bit, like this very rose colored glasses kind of approach to it. And to me, it seems like that is part of the... Um, coping with that and making sense out of the craziness that was i don't but you are you are very good at finding that silver lining the good thing yeah. lessons within whatever it is that is part of your natural nature okay so then let me ask this question what part of the story that i just told over three hours was through rose-colored glasses that's why i'm saying don't hold on to that word so much it's it's never really like a negative with you. No, You're it's because I try to make it, I try to make the negative funny. Well, yeah, but it's not like it doesn't come across always as funny. Yeah, there's always an element of humor because we're twisted, but it just, it does come off a lot of the times as something that um, is just not a big deal. It's just a certain vibe that for you, it might not seem that way, but for everyone else, you know, from the outer perspective, it's like, how could he be so like cavalier about this and just make it like, oh yeah, nah, no big deal. But that's because I think that that's not normal is because I think most people would still be hanging on to it and they would be talking about it negatively. I, again, I don't look at it as a bad thing that I can look back at it. No one said it's a bad thing. That I can look back at it and laugh and joke about it because people would expect that to be something I'm still coping with. So just because I'm not, why does that mean that in any way, shape, or form, that 
because that's not the reaction people would expect from that experience that it's not well, I don't correct. think that it's necessarily not still coping with it or having its residual effects you just are not a negative you don't come at it from a negative perspective you come at it from a very positive perspective hence my comment about the rose-colored glasses aspect which throws most anyone who hears the story because yeah well, it's sure. very how the fuck can you think of it like that but right and that's that, my point um the coping is still happening and that can be seen from the conversations how often it's brought up how often it's referenced and it is that very much um how it's close to you as if it it just happened a year ago it's that kind of relevance that is felt when you talk about it well i guess i guess the so only way that, that i can that i can describe that is because i didn't used to when me and bailey first moved in together there were the the stories of the academy were very few and far between and part of that was because I was still dealing with it. Mm -hmm. And so I think as time moved on and I did deal with it and I, I had to look at myself and say, fuck, this is affecting me and this is not good. I have I have certain parts of my brain that are functioning this way because of this or blah, 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 blah. As I worked through that, it allowed me to talk about something that literally ended half of my life ago and look at it and say, you know what? I worked through this. I put in the work over the first, you know, four or five, six years after getting out. And now I can. And so I think, yeah, that is why some people are thrown is because it's not the kind of reaction to a story like that, that people expect. So then their default is, well, he hasn't dealt with it. He's Stockholmed. He's romanticizing. And it's not the first, you're not the, hold on. You're not the first person that has said that to me about it. And my thing is that I go, no, it's because I did deal with it. And it didn't, it wasn't a long time. And I didn't tell stories very often because it was still fresh and it was coping and it did still hurt. And so I think, especially now at this age with two years of sobriety and dealing with every kind of demon that I can possibly muster up and purposely try to drag out to face, I don't at this point, other, let me put it this way. Of course, there's going to be residual effects. I'm not ever going to say that there aren't residual effects. As a matter of fact, I embrace the facts that it did change me because were it not for the Academy, I don't know if there would have been a catalyst in my life that would have done, as Jen said, draw those kind of character traits out of me. But what I was saying, sorry, I'm not trying to cut you Very off. Good. I was saying that you already had those in you and you didn't need a catalyst. The academy drew them out of you because of circumstance. You were put in a position where you literally were drained of your identity, as you said. You had nothing. I mean, literally nothing at some points. You had just had a blanket on some wood. So um, you had nothing and those characteristics had to come through you already had them in you you were already an amazing person oh, I get very intelligent you already had all of that the academy it brought it out you in a funny way and i do i do see what you're saying there with like i was put in the worst situation ever because it, it it actually is very funny to picture some christian based fucking loser being like put your nose on a fucking bench and you're just like yeah fuck you like that's amazing like i okay, i love so i get what you're saying that possibly happened but you're you, saying dude, you already had that shit you were already great and i think that's where some terminology is getting crossed i never said that they created it and i think that that was how it was i'm not saying that the academy created these i'm saying it did bring out stuff that I don't know 
would have gotten brought out. Yes, I agree that it was already in me, but I'm ben, saying- Ben, that's I what I was saying too. I, I already know. I uh, huh. It was already there. It would have gotten brought out in you just in day-to-day -day life. Maybe, you didn't but we don't know the, that because that's not how life went. Yeah. Okay. It would have happened. Is, like, you guys are saying the same thing. Like those traits mm -hmm. were already in but given your environment, and you're both agreeing on the same stuff, given the environment, your, your parental environment that you were having and giving before the academy, you're saying, and I understand completely, those traits would have been dormant a lot longer because you had no ability to let them out. You had no way to get them out. And then the academy, you were finally, you got a little bit of freedom because you're around people that didn't know you. They knew you well, they knew about you, they knew how smart you were, but they didn't know the ins and outs of how smart you were because they weren't your parents. As much as they weren't involved, they at least knew that about you to tell them that. So you got a little bit of like a ghost of like people that didn't understand really what they were dealing with. So you got to bring that stuff out. Whereas at home, it would have been just shut down automatically because they already knew to anticipate it. <laughs> right, but as he went into the working world and just got out, it would have been brought out in him because he was in the world where people didn't know him and he would have to deal with people who didn't, who weren't his parents, like you were saying. And he would have to deal with some asshole being a dick at work at fucking Shopco or whatever. And you'd have to deal with it in a very different way than you would if you were just under the thumb of your parents because you were out in that world. Being out isn't a thing you got to experience. So once you got put out there, it was in the academy. Like that was the first place you got to go. And you had a hell of a time trying to express yourself. I mean, well, it's I kind of cool. But so in that way, in that way, I'll agree with you just to kind of close this out is in that way that I would agree with you. I just don't. I think that the amount of pressure and trauma from that place drew it out faster and it honed yeah. it. And it honed it yeah. a lot faster than the longer yeah. route of an easier experience. Because everybody yeah. knows that hard times really shape, not saying you're not already have that shape in you, but it really starts to kind of shave off the rough edges into what you're supposed to be. And the harder thing that you endure, but make it through, like th there's a reason yeah. why they say what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, right? So like, had it not have been for the academy, those traits would not have resurrected as fast or as strong mm -hmm. or as early as living a regular life. Or yeah. the other side of that is what if there was evil traits in me that had I not have gotten sent to the academy would have been more manifested because I'm not of the opinion that there isn't good and evil in every person. It's like what Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. said. If I really put myself in the spot of a serial killer, not only could I do it, but I would enjoy it. And so my thing is this, is that if we're all capable of it, who's to say that that lack of experience wouldn't have necessarily brought out worse traits in me that were already in me that, that, that didn't get honed. And who's to say that I wouldn't have chosen to live a very work ethic, staunch, stubborn life in the bad areas. I don't yeah. know. So the only way that I look at it is that if both of those are a possibility and this is the way that I ended up in a way, yeah. I am grateful for the Academy for doing that. I don't, I'm not grateful for the treatment. I am not grateful for what I went through, but I am grateful for what it brought out and how it brought it out. There's no other way to look at it because again, it's almost 20 fucking years ago.
I, I don't yeah. see a problem with your perspective on it at all. Actually, um, you're taking Thank something you. that sucked and turning it into something that you can look back on. And, and it, it's there's two different you're things here. We're not talking about. No, we're not, we're not talking about you. Nobody has a problem with it. It's just. A... I just mean it, there. There is a, a level to it where somebody could take some trauma like that and have Stockholm syndrome and, you know, love their captors and all that. I don't think you're doing that at all. You're just saying, yeah, that sucked, but now I am who I am. So, you know, water into the bridge. Uh, there's a certain, you know, freedom to letting this shit go too. Absolutely. There's no reason, there's no reason to hang on to it and be like, this was so fucked. I'm a, yeah, so fucked up. Which, which is why I can bring it up as nonchalantly and jokingly as I can is because of after letting go with it, working through it in the first like four to six years after healing. Yeah. You can, I can look back at it and say, you know what? I met 120 guys that are the only people on this earth who have any idea what that was like. And yeah, a lot of them chose to do bad shit and now they're dead. A lot of them are living really shitty lives. That's their choice. But a lot of those guys I can connect with and only those people will ever be able to be like, yeah, dude, I remember that shit. That was crazy. It's kind of like when you look back at a party that went sideways, but you made it out yeah. and you're like, oh my God, that was some fucked well, up shit. Yeah. But, I oh think my you God. have to relive the whole experience. Like Ben, you need to relive this whole experience with the mentality that you have right now. Because when you went into it, you were a child. Like you had no idea. You were super smart, quick witted. You were like, dude, I got this shit. And you, you did. It sounds like you did a great job of dealing with it. But now going back, I don't know if there's like a regression therapist that we could find. But if you went back and lived that life with the knowledge you have now, I think you'd handle it a lot differently. And I think you'd take a little less from it and know that yourself, like you in yourself, like you were better than what they made you feel and what okay. they pulled out in you. So I'm going to counter that with, yes, I would go back and handle it a lot differently, but I would only handle it differently because I'd already been through it the first time the way that I handled it. Yeah. yeah, I understand that. Like, that's the point. I get that. But you went in as a child, which is my point as to why these places oh, okay. are fucking disgusting. They, yeah, they I agree. People who have no knowledge of life at all. And they're like, oh, cool. I'm going to treat you like a fucking slave slash prisoner or whatever. They treat you like shit. And you shouldn't be treated like that at 13, 14, 15. It, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't be treated like that in any age, you know but especially not a child. You know what's funny about that? It's from the same group of people that are so avidly anti-abortion and pro-death penalty. <laughs> oh, that's that makes perfect sense to me, actually. Right? <laughs> that should, should have never happened to you. I would love to go back in time and just fucking rescue you from that place. It's so gross. I understand. Joe thought about it. Joe had a whole plan of, of, of busting into that place and yanking my ass out. Dude, it just sounds so gross. I understand that you thrived. I love your stories because you were in there. You were in the fucking belly of the beast and you're like, I'm going to fucking be a dick. I'm going to devise a plan and then find this guy who's going to definitely tattle on me. I'm going to get in huge trouble. Um, You sound a lot like your son, by the way, who I love to death as well. But I can 100% see him doing the same thing. And it's great. It's a great character building exercise for this existence that you're in right now but at the end of the day 
that experience was bullshit and that should never have happened to you. And your parents fucking regret the shit out of that. You can see it in they their do. face every single yep. day when they talk to me and Lene because they're like, oh, second wives. Fuck those second wives. I remember telling Lene, I'm like, well, um, so Blair, so all of us have been married twice. Like, so you guys, I mean, Blair's been married twice. Joe's been married twice. I mean, you, you've been sort of married twice, whatever. But every second wife, there it it gets better and better. Mel's like, Mel's like, I paved the way for you. And I'm like, oh, did you? I don't fucking know. But they were very nice to me. Right. And then when they met Lene, they were like, oh, yes, let's just talk about anything we want. Because they are so fucking regretful for how they behaved during this mom. Actually almost like a possession. When we said no more babies, it's like. Okay, she, she doesn't. She doesn't really care. I think she pretends to care about like like it's basic. Come a long stuff, way. She's just like, oh yes, I need to learn. I think they're in the baby stages of learning how to be normal people. Like they don't know because they spent so long all of child rearing age not knowing how to be a fucking person. All they wanted was control. They're like. Do, do, do. You have to do what I say. Once you move out, I guess I can't control you. Then I'm going to get even more mad. And Ben was the last on the list. And that's why you got sent to that place. Because they're like, well, we can catch you because you're the weakest. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is pretty much what it came down to. Um, well, that oh. being said, we are going on three and a half hours. I'm starting to get yeah, shaky because I haven't fucking eaten. Uh, thank you guys all for, uh, doing this. I, I already told Joe, I don't know about a part two. Uh, <laughs> that might be a <laughs> exclusive for those. One at a time, one at a time. What? Uh, baby on the tip for half that time. I got questions back here. <laughs> We'll line it out at some point. Write down your questions, though. I was muted. Uh, I also want to say, uh, for any of the listeners out there, if you have any similar experiences, which I very much doubt, but if you do... <laughs> no, if you do, let us know. It's uh, legitbatpod at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on Instagram or whatever. Um, and yeah, just let us know what you think about this. Uh, it's some, some weird shit. But thanks, Bailey. Thanks, Courtney, Lene, Ben, Jen. Thanks, everybody, for joining. This was a marathon fucking episode for us. Oh, my God. I'm going to go eat us. chili now. Love you guys. All right, guys. Have a good night. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.